Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Asher Kirishanu Vimetzotah Vetivanu, Laasok Vedivrei Torah. Veharevna Adonai Eloheinu et Vivrei Toreteka, Befinu Ufi Amka Beit Yisrael. Venie Anachnu Vetzetzeinu, Vetzetzei Amka, Beit Yisrael, Kulanu Yodea Shemeka, Velomde Toreteka Lishma. Baruch Ata Adonai, Hamlamet Torah Leamo Yisrael. Mashiach now. May it be your will, Hashem, my God, that a mishap not come about through me. And may I not stumble in a matter of Torah and cause my colleagues to rejoice over me. And may I not say regarding something which is to me that it is to whore and not regard something which is to horror that is to me. And may my colleagues not stumble in a matter of Torah, and I rejoice over them. For Hashem grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil my eyes, that I may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Amen. I'd like to welcome everyone to Matot Maseh. Rumination study. This Shabbat, just a heads up to everyone, we do begin the nine days. However, the first day of the nine days is going to be a Shabbat. So guess what? We can drink wine and we can eat meat for that day. <laughs> but for the rest of the nine days, no wine, no meat, and other different customs that are coming at us. So uh, just everyone, just know the month of Av is coming in hot. <laughs> yep, it sure is. <laughs> All right, what do we got for ruminations today? Rumination 40. Why is repair better than never building? And why is repentance so necessary? You know, one of the things I think about with repair uh, better than building or never building, like in our minds, when we put up an edifice, it's like we always go through all these details with the, the planning, all the stages, the architecture and things like that. And it's like we want everything to be perfect, want it spotless. We do all the inspections you know, with the, the local government and all that kind of stuff. But that's nothing, according to the rumination here, than when we look at the, the repair process. Like, in other words, there's a lot more um, glory, so to speak, in the repair. Which you think about the aspect of repair and you look at preservation you look at attention to detail because how do you even repair something if you haven't noticed that there's something that needs attention you know so when you're when you're building something you don't necessarily have to pay attention to everything like you would when it comes to a repair because it's like it's it's new it's obviously it's going to be fine you know but when it comes to repair it's like if this doesn't get repaired there's usually implications that the edifice is in trouble, you know, or whatever you're building. 
So just a neat thought there, um, because sometimes you can get discouraged by the amount of things, you know, think about the Mashiach's words, you know, count the costs, you know, consider what it takes to build a tower, you know, or consider what it takes to go out to war. And it's just like, well, since it takes that much, maybe I don't want to build this tower. Maybe I don't want to go to war. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at Christianity and they have all these edifices, you know, that are grand and glorious. And I can't help but to go back to the Sabbath by Abraham Joseph Herschel. Yep, I got that source remembered. Um, in his introduction, when he talks about the grandeur of the things of space, mm -hmm. it's not in the having that's important, it's that we're always confronted with the sacred, sacred moments. You really don't hear about repentance except, oh, when we need to hold a revival service. Mm. I know that both you and I have heard this one quite a right. bit. Kind of especially get in, <laughs> in Pentecostal circles, you know, we need to have a tent revival, you know? Mm-hmm. But teshuva is something that you do every day. I mean, there's always something to turn from and turn back to Hashem for. Always. I always say this the Torah is like a mirror. Yeah. You know, it, it's you study it carefully enough, you begin to see yourself. Yeah, in that aspect, that would be the shiny labor, the kior, as it's called, Farshaktitisa. Because in the shiny labor, what's in the bottom of it and what's it made out of? <laughs> the mirrors from. Just about to use the word cassette. Oh, yeah. What you got? Uh, from one of the Hasidic tales mm -hmm. of the man oh, who, the... who came to the Rebbe and said, I'm too poor to give Zadaka. And he pronounces a blessing on him, and then he becomes wealthy. And at first, he's giving Zadaka to the poor, to the needy of the town. But after a while, his heart starts to become hardened. He starts to become selfish. And so the Rebbe who blessed him, you know, heard of it, and he hired the finest chariot and on the finest clothes and brought, you know, gold coin to pay for entry into his home. Of course, when he showed up, the guy wasn't happy. So he came here under false pretenses. Then he turns to the mirror on the wall and takes it down, puts it in front of him. What do you see? He's, you know, myself. Then he takes it out. He tears out the cassette, holds it at the window says now what do you see and he says people and that's and that's a lesson on arrogance 
you look out the window, you see people, but if you line it with Kasef, the only thing you can see is yourself. Wow. But the teshuva is stripping away the Kasef so that we can see the larger picture that the Torah is presenting us with. And that is the Olam Haba, which we're all striving for. Amen. Striving to merit our, to have our portion in the world to come. Like it says in the, the prayer after study, I run, they run. I run to the life of the world to come. They run into the pit of destruction. And as it is written, you, O oh God, will lower them into the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed shall not live out half their years. You know, that speaks of selfishness there, you know, and arrogance too. So, yeah. Another reason why teshuva is so important. Because that really makes me think about zadaka as well, because the way teshuva and zadaka are side by side in that, because the whole story centers around zadaka, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really does humble you. You know, what does it say at the end of Kohelet, twelve thirteen? Let us sum up the matter. Fear Hashem and keep his mitzvot. For this is the whole duty of man. Yeah. Some rabbis say, read that verse first and then start over. Because hmm. that pretty much wraps up the safer. It, it makes the point. Everything, everything you're getting in between the first verse and that one is all the details of life. Wow. So the rest of Kohelet hangs on these two things? Just like all the mitzvot of the Torah hang on the Shema and love your neighbor, as our master says. Nice. Um, so you, when you get back to the shiny labor then, what the women donated, they use the kesef as zadaka. You know, like, I don't want something that blocks and that only causes me to see myself, which if you really follow the medrash all the way back to the, the original use of the mirrors was for the women to get the men to look at them and to cause them to be able to procreate more Jews. You know, it really was like, it basically outserpenting the serpent is what the sages would say. You know, what the Mashiach and the Nakash being the same gematria, because you would think, oh, you're stirring up lust and things like that. It's like, well, actually, I'm doing this to create a mitzvah, which is to be fruitful and multiply. And because we're being fruitful and multiplying, we're now bringing in more Jews into the world. And then the that is the source and the foundation of this labor where you must first go here before you can do anything else in the Mishkan or in the temple. 
And this is what Yaakov was alluding to when he says that you look at your face in the mirror, you know, and if you don't do what it do, what the word says, it's like you, you came up to the labor and you just forgot what you looked like, you know? And so just to think about all the implications, the Zadaka, the, the self-sacrifice, the, the, the using the, uh, the Yetzer to do mitzvot. You know, like it's like all these different things coming into place at once. And that's in the center of the inner court or, or Slika, the uh, the holy place and the altar. You know, like basically between the two most sacred places where the offerings happen, because, you know, you have the inner altar, which is the golden altar, the incense that binds us to Hashem. And then you have the outer altar, all the Corbinote that draws us near to Hashem. And in between those two places, you have this aspect of the shiny labor. Yeah, that's the word Corban literally means to draw near. Or when you draw near. Yeah. Does I remember correctly, the arrangement in the Ohel Moed is that the the silver labor is just inside the curtain of the holy place? Outside. It's, oh, okay. Yeah. So it's just outside, right? Just before you yes. actually go in, right? Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's the point I'm after is that you need to wash because we are the earthenware vessel. So you're capturing your vessel, your cleat. Yeah. Just like Before this you even, even go in. Aharon does this. If we go back to Beha Alotka, mm -hmm. when you ascend mm -hmm. to light the menorah, you have to what? be cashier. You have to cashier your vessel. It's like an earthenware vessel. And earthenware vessels are like pottery. They're, yep. they're fired in a kiln. Gotta go through and, the wall. And what does the writer of Hebrews say concerning fire? Our God is a consuming fire. Yeah. He, it burns out all the impurities, and we're just left with a pure vessel suitable for service in the holy place and the most holy place to be able to light the menorah, to keep the incense burning, to arrange the bread. On the Shokan. Who may ascend the mountain of Hashem? Yeah. Those with clean hands. Clean hands. And a pure heart. The fire. Hands, for the meaning, fire you heart. have not lifted up your hands to bloodshed. Nor right. is your heart divided in loyalty. It's exclusively loyal to the king of the universe. Because as we were reminded in Devering 6.4... The Shema, the, the watch phrase of Judaism is that you have the two letters that are made large, the Ayin and the Dalet, aid, which is witness. You bear witness to his kingship. And you can't go into the presence of the king wearing scruffy looking clothes. Right? You've got to be presentable. This is what the master alludes to when he says uh, there was a man who came in 
not wearing the proper attire. That parable. Mm-hmm. And they came up to him and said, sir, why aren't you dressed? And he was speechless. <laughs> so take him yeah. away. At least have an excuse, right? <laughs> he didn't even have that. <laughs> Man. It just it just says in the pursuit that he was speechless. Yeah. Nothing to say. You know, it's yeah, you like get taken back by that and it makes you realize, you know, that didn't do Teshuva, obviously. Yeah. Because we're clothed in the mitzvot. If he doesn't see that clothing, then you're an unwelcome guest to the wedding. Man. Yeah. But the cool thing is clothes are available if you don't have them. Yes. You know, something along the lines of this is all I had, you know, or I'm not able to have the proper attire. Could I have assistance? Because what else do we learn from the sages? If one wants to purify himself, he is helped by Shemayim. He is helped by heaven. Imagine that you're here at the banquet and you get approached and it's like, why are you dressed like that? Why are you not in the proper attire? You know, and you're just like, well, I would love to be. Could I have some help? Because what what are we what is coming up? Tuba of. What did we learn about Tuba of? That this is the night when we would go out, the ladies would go out actually, and the men would follow. The ladies would have garments that they wear that they borrowed from one another. So that no one was left out. And everyone actually had this aspect of humility to them because they're wearing someone else's clothes. So when you think about that aspect of showing up to the banquet, if you can take the concept of tuba of and overlay it on that, you know, the borrowed garments idea, you know, and someone being able to look out for this person You know, someone's here, they don't have the proper attire. You know, what can I offer them before they get approached, before they get questioned? It's like the whole aspect of looking out for your fellow. Which we just spoke about that, right? The Shema. The Shema and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the large ayin and the dalit, the witness. What are we witnessing? What are our eyes open to? What do our eyes need to be open to? And one of the things I was thinking about when you were speaking on that note, because the whole thing with the witness and the Shema, Mashiach Yeshua says in Acts chapter one, he says that you will be my witnesses. And Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. So the Shema has to spread. Man, okay, so we haven't even started the rumination yet, so we need to get into the rumination. <laughs> Quite a bit to talk about here. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, which is so, 
used by the church as their mantra for evangelizing when they just skip over and commanded them to observe all things. Yeah. Which I have commanded you. Asher Kichanu. Ziva. You know, yeah. I noticed that word is spelled with Zadi. And it has, and I get this imagery of the righteous man praying. Ooh. Yeah. Because he's on his knees. It's kind of like, you know, like this, you know, and, he, and he's devening and he's humbling himself, which is what that letter actually looks like. Yeah. One of the teachings as well is that it's a, a noon bent over with a yod on its back and they say this is the Zadik with the Jew on his back so like supporting the Jews like the Zadik supporting or like the nations supporting the Ooh. Jewish people which is what they're supposed to be doing the nation supporting the Jewish people mm. yes Okay. Um, some I'll get into a little later because I've been reading Shnei Lukot on the mystical aspects of the Geula um, and, you know, redemption and, and the, uh, the Galut. Um, but the thing about this teshuva is there are some questions that will never that we will never be able to answer. Some are so far beyond our comprehension we only suspect there is a question there waiting to be asked, and yet we cannot articulate it. Repentance is one of those subjects that appears straightforward, and yet it raises questions that beget questions, unspoken and incomprehensible. The answer being even further beyond our grasp. Um, perhaps I think Spurlock is delving into Kabbalah, although he doesn't like to. Because <laughs> I've listened to all his podcasts, all his lessons, you know, several times over. Um, but for me, Kabbalah is at the heart of this illumination mm. because Adam HaRishon, because of the, that transgression, separated himself from the totality of Hashem. This is part of the mystery, the illusion of it um, drawing us back. Because so long as we are aware of our own ego, our own intelligence, our own existence, which are separate from the totality of Hashem, we're going to have a problem dealing with or grappling with Teshuvah and what mm. it, it, it's real, it's inner dimension. Because we're being drawn back to the totality of Hashem, he continues to say, 
you know, it's just come back, return. It's like we're trying to, the, the, like the point in the Mishkan, it's all about the garden. It's all about Gandhi Don. This, this is a point that's missed on many, especially in, the, in Christian theology. Theologians just walk right past this one. You know, they may, they may read, but they're blind to the real significance that it represents creation. When Shlomo built the first temple, it had allusions to the garden. A lot of motifs were inside that reminded us of the garden. The golden apples that were etched on the wall. Uh-huh. The, the because of the, the presence of the Shekinah, they became alive. Yeah. So that you could literally eat them. The pomegranates, the date palms. All that and, stuff is symbolic. All that stuff happens to be allegorically listed, spoken of in Shir Hashirin. Nice. It speaks of Hashem's love affair with yeah. Israel, his eternal faithfulness. It's a call for us to be co continuously faithful. Yeah, we're going to stumble. Yeah, we're going to sin, you know. That's just our nature, you know, that we have to battle with, you know. You know, every day, you know, presented with that choice, you know. And just, you know, in, in the face of this mystery that is that is beyond our comprehension, it's a lot like a hope. It's a mystery. We're not given the details. It's simple obedience. That's what yeah. we need to do. Teshuvah definitely would be a, a hook because <laughs> it makes zero sense. Yeah, not to the logical mind, but to the person of faith, it does make sense. Mm-hmm. To you, to us who know the know and study the Torah, because we know our life is in the mitzvot. So we do. Eighth of days. Even if it's a little bit of piece at a time or like a grain of sand on the beach. Yeah. Get enough grains, boy. You got you got you working with some. <laughs> build, build yourself a sandcastle, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's, that's the thing. You start putting it together, but Bezrat Hashem, you know, you see it his way and you slowly begin to understand. And that is Teshuva. Yeah. When you start to see from his, that, that's the amazing for me. That's the amazing part for me is when we see it from the perspective of the or and so yeah from the divine light yeah because what do we learn from yeshiyahu from isaiah higher are my thoughts than your thoughts far above man's ways as the heavens are above the earth which to connect with what you're just saying that means when we get to a place through the process of teshuva constantly it's like we ascend into a heavenly uh, so to speak, because to be able to see from his perspective, it's like looking down from the heavens to the earth.
which to take it up even more, pun intended, we have the Hillel starting in Tehillim 113, where it talks about Hashem humbling himself to acknowledge the heavens and the earth. You know, so he's far above the heavens. So whenever we're making Teshuva, it's like making steps towards infinity. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we can, I mean, I mean, we're finite creations. We can, the Torah is the only means by which we have to even, like a, a point of reference. Because it's written in the language of men, so we need it. Mm -hmm. That's one of the other reasons why he gave it, so that we would know. Yeah. And have a point of reference in coming to understand him. Because if you say that the Torah is done away with that, how are you going to do Teshuvah in the first place? How? You're going to come up with something on your own, which means <laughs> uh, you're still lost. What's your, what's your, uh, how do we put it? If you, if you have your own, like your own goal, your own perspective of how to do something. Uh, trying to remember, it's a couple of ruminations ago, and we keep repeating it. But basically, if you're a, if you're subjective about what you're teaching and what you're learning, you know, there's nothing objective about it, basically, because it's lost on your own personal preference. Your personal perspective is limited. You know, it's like your own truth kind of thing it's like you're locking yourself in a room and you won't allow anyone else or anything to come in to disturb yeah. to, you know you've created your own little world yeah because you, you don't have a source you know you don't yeah. you don't have any information beyond you that even keeps you accountable like everything that we read and we, we source out, you know, from the sages and things like that, you know, these aren't our own words, you know, and this helps us to make sure that we're not coming up with something on our own and being like, yeah, 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 that's good. That's good. <laughs> that's something I'm really careful about is interpretation, the hermeneutics. You know, the eschatology, the ecclesiology, you know, is I try to, well, I think one of the primary aims of Torah study, proper Torah study, is to, you know, to be objective is you have to submerge your own biases. And for a lot of people, that is a very difficult thing to do, especially if you're in the church, if you're a pastor who's gone to seminary and you've mm -hmm. been literally indoctrinated by this theology that is deeply anti-Semitic at its heart, and you think that it's right, you're, bas you're basically you're in the closet. It's like the people, some of these people that say, oh, the Talmud's got evil stuff in it, you know? And I beg the question, you know, do you even know it? Do you even know what they're talking about? 
because what they're discussing is the Torah, the Tanakh, the scriptures. Mm-hmm. This is 70 men doing this. All their thoughts day and night revolve around it. And what's the source for the oral Torah? The written Torah. <laughs> Which boggles the mind. You're just like, what? Because without the oral Torah, how can you understand the written Torah? But it's like, well, the written Torah is the source. Yeah. Though. <laughs> I remember reading in, I think it was yeah, Shnei Luko Volume 2, where he, he Eliyahu Monk says that the oral Torah is the the perfect Torah revealed. That is the Torah that existed at creation before creation. Because the Midrash says one of the seven things that existed before the creation is the Torah. That was the Torah of perfection. So when you grab your Talmudic volume and you see the sages start talking about just going over every single word, every single letter, pulling out every possible ounce or microbe or, I mean, you know, just of insight possible coming out with from basically 70 different angles. You know, that to me is amazing, but it also speaks to the accountability that they hold to each other too. Because there's one standard that they're holding to. And that is uh, Pardes. And no one enters the orchard unprepared. Because if you did, then you would be have a problem. Right. Because your clea is not properly prepared. So speaking of that, we have... I'm going to quote a couple of uh, drops here from Parsha Matot Masay from Shvile Pinkus, Rabbi Pinkus Friedman, Shlita. He says, he brings down a source here, Megillah 18b, to the point that you just mentioned, teaches us that it is prohibited to write even one letter in a Torah scroll of scripture unless it is copied from a text. So you talk about prepared vessel, right? So there's all sorts of things that the Sofarim have to do in order to be ready to write a Torah scroll. <laughs> so according to a Bereta, Rabbi Meir wrote a Megillah from memory. Rabbi Meir is different since he epitomizes the Pasuk, Proverbs 4.25, as, and the pupils of your eyes shall look straight in front of you. The Gemara explains this refers to the words of Torah, which it is written, close your eyes from it and it is gone. And even so, despite the ease with which the words of Torah are forgotten by everyone else, they were always directly in front of Rabbi Meir. So Rabbi Meir at one point wrote a Torah from memory. And it's just like, Dude, you just violated Megillah 18 feet. <laughs> but um, 
there's a whole drop about uh, one of the quote unquote mistakes that he made as he did this. He wrote the the garments of light or the garments of skin that uh, Hashem made for Adam and Hava. He used an olive instead of the ayin. Remember we talked about this? Hashem gave us garments of skin with an ayin, not with an olive. So when Rabbi Meir was writing his scroll, he put the olive there. Yeah. And basically, there is Torah that exists before creation. It's called the Torah of Sod, which it corresponds to the Samic of Pardes. So the levels of Torah study from Peshat, Remez, Drash, Sod, those represent the higher worlds like Adzilut, Yadzira, um, Berea, Asiya, all those. So those correspond to the letters of Pardes. And when you get into the Sod, that's the Torah on its highest level, which is why Rabbi Meir put the Aleph instead of the Ayin, because really that's the letter that should have been there. To which Shavile Pincus quotes, Panim Yafot explains, the Torah preceded the world, the upper and lower worlds were created with it. The spiritual level or quality of the Torah is related to the level of the particular world. It eventually reached the Olam Hazeh, this world, wherein it or wherein materialized in physical letters, man or were. Wow, this is written really weird. It eventually reached Olam Hazeh, wherein materialized in physical letters seen by man so in other words the torah that we see the torah of this world that we can see in letters and all that kind of stuff that's in this world but there's a torah that is beyond the letters that we see and that's in the higher worlds and so the whole thing about preparing your vessels if we can't refine ourselves enough to see torah on this level how in the world can we get there? I think, uh, see, that helps to understand Kagiga 14, the Gemara there, a lot better. Because, you know, the four rabbis went in and only Rabbi Akiva came out. That's right. Only because his cleave was prepared. To receive that which is in secret, the secret things, the mystical. Yeah. Um, you know, like when we study about gematria, when two words have the same gematria, it's very significant. You know, it's drawing our attention to something important that we need to be aware of. Because the both the two are interconnected. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah. While you're reading that, Gamara, I was looking to see if there's anything and Avoda Zara from this week's Parsha that they were they were talking about uh, 
See, Rao Papa provides a device to calculate how many years have passed since the beginning of the Messianic era. And Avodah Zerah 9a. Rav Papa said, if Atana is uncertain and does not know the precise year, he should ask a scribe how many years he is writing as the date in the documents of that year. Add 48 to it, and he will thereby find his solution. And in the following verses, you're mnemonic to remember how many years should be added. 48 cities, which are the cities of refuge. Hmm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, well, there's the, uh, hang on, my battery's going crazy. <laughs> there's the the six cities of refuge, but there's the the 42 Levitical cities. Yeah which are included within that. So let me see where that's at. Because it's interesting because Moshe instituted the first three that are on the other side of the Jordan. Yeah. Uh, before his uh, death. The, the footnote for that. Numbers 35.7. These are the 48 cities of the Leviim were granted in Eretz Israel, which will be restored to them in the Messianic era. See Sefer HaChinuk, 408 with uh, Mika's Chinuk. This verse yeah. thus helps us uh, to remind, remind Atana that to calculate the years of the Messianic era that have been lost, he adds 48. Wow. And the rest of the Gemara is if a scribe and if a scribe is uncertain as to the precise year, he should ask Katana how many years he is uh, teaching as the date of that year. Subtract 48 from it and he will thereby find his solution. Footnote two, this is the reverse of the previous formula, whereas the Tana adds 48 to the scribe's year. The scribe subtracts 48 from the Tana's year. And the following phrase is your mnemonic to remember who adds 48 and who subtracts. A scribe is sparing. A Tana is increasing. Mm. And this, uh, this is our is era 9b. And then see notes. 15 for uh, explanation on Rashi printed at the end of 9A which uh, yeah a scribe is precise when writing the words of a Torah scroll. He follows the Mozaretic tradition, which requires some words to be written without a letter that will serve as a vowel. See, for example, Rashi to Exodus 10.21. Hence, at times, a scribe subtracts a letter. A tana, by contrast, is 
associated with adding because, aside from the main corpus of rulings compiled in the Mishnah, Eitana also teaches the Tosefta, which literally means addition. Rashi cross-reference Aruch, cited in uh, Masoras Hashas, see Agaos Yavetz. Nice. To which I would like to add Tur Ha Arok um, by Midbar 3514. He says, The whole arrangement was not unequal once we realized that the cities of the Levites were part of it, so that there were a total of 48 cities that could provide refuge for inadvertent killers. So technically, there are six cities of refuge, but technically, there's 48. Yeah. Um, and note the person who killed accidentally or unintentionally must reside within that city until the death of the, the Kohen Gadol. That's right. Which this does point to Yeshua, who is Kohen Gadol. Yeah. Because where does he reside? I mean, Pilate was the one that had put him to death, right? Mm -hmm. But the Jews are accused of killing him by Christianity. Right. Labeled, you know, Christ killer. Which we both know is ridiculous because it holds no weight. So then I think of um, Barakot, where the sages say, you know, where's Mashiach to be found? He's found in the gates of Rome. Um, and then we have the Jews scattered in the diaspora for the last 2,000 years. And I would postulate that this is potentially a city of refuge for them, wherever they are throughout the diaspora because they were falsely accused. It was an unintentional killing on their part. Hmm. And we as the nations have to take care of them, provide for their needs. Because it's also halakha that the women in each city are required to bring them a meal and clothing and you know they're provide for their basic needs. So the aspect of crucify him, crucify him, right? We, we know that the Sadducees were the ones who were really promoting that angry mob mentality. Yeah. So that being accredited to the Jewish people as an inadvertent killing. See, the problem is Christianity has just labeled the whole barrel of apples rot. Just out of a matter of convenience. Wow. But Hashem has always raised up those among the nations who are sympathetic, who are being drawn into Torah and then learning, as we're doing right now. Yeah. Who are providing for their basic needs. 
you know, shirt on your back, you know, food, shelter, that kind of thing. In a sense, we're doing that for Mashiach because what does he say? If you have done this to the poor, you've done it to me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, when I was sick, you, you came to me. When I was in prison, you visited me. Yeah. <clears throat> there was um, a source that I was reading earlier this week that was talking about inadvertent killers being in the cities of refuge and how there was an aspect of righteousness uh, to these individuals. Because we, we would tend to think, oh, if you're in the city of refuge, you killed somebody, you must be a pretty bad, wicked person. Well, the fact that they're inadvertent killers, number one, like they had no intention to do so, you know, and the aspect of um, the mothers of the Kohanim bringing food and, and clothing to those people who were in these cities so that they would not pray for the death of the Kohen. You know, in other words, they knew that, you know, the, the source of their provision was coming from the Cohen act, actually being alive, you know? And so when people- I know the would, source you're quoting from is this week's Torah Wellsprings. Okay. Malik Bitterman, that's the source you're quoting. I just read the whole thing today. Okay, and Bruce point, and, and he points that out. Yeah. About the Halakha, that the potential exists that they would pray for the death of the Cohen. And immediately I thought to myself, you should not have that Kavana. Yeah. You shouldn't. May we never think it. I you mean, don't want to, you know, when Shaul was standing before the, the Kohen Gadol in his day, and even though he said, you whitewashed wall, why do you have your guard slap me? You know, it wasn't a, a term of disrespect. It's just merely pointing out that no one will be struck. In the Sanhedrin, no one would be struck like that in the Beit Din, be treated with such disrespect. That's why Shaul says that. He knows the Halakha, even though it's not codified yet. Mm. No one should be treated that way. Yeah. So that's what Bitterman is bringing out in the Torah Wellsprings for this week. The, 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 the deep meaning of it, you know. Is that how are we treating each other? <clears throat> are we helping others to inspire them to do Teshuvah? Right. Because there's something really good from Rav Cook also. Okay. On this subject as well. Um, I have to pull it up though. Um, but. Um, yeah, I'm running into that thing where, you know, I read, I tab, I read, I tab. But to really get back to all the tabs that you made, it's just kind of like, okay, <laughs> it's gonna take it's gonna take longer than it's gonna take longer for me to get to that tab than I can just speak it, you know? You're like, man. <laughs> um yeah. Um but yeah, Barukashan for sources though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's important to memorize them, you know, which um I've been reading that one every week now. Yeah. 
because I like I like the insights he brings because he also brings some Musar. He also brings some very good stories. Oh man, one hundred percent. You know, yeah. I think about Yeshua and the parables. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm like, exactly. You know, it's like, am I reading the Gospels here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just yeah. this is the Zadik. This is Yeshua, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no departure from Judaism here. Nothing. Nothing. Nope. Not even so much as a hint, and we should not even think that. I mean. Sound like Matthew 5 17. Yeah. Did not even think that I came to abolish. Right there. You could you could stop right there and say, do not even think. Bam, right there. You got it in a nutshell. You know, that goes for the letters as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I man, to think that Shaul never supported Christian doctrine. Wow. Like, if you think about that for a second, the very letters that are being used, (laughs) man. You know, see, that begs the question when you go back to Acts 9, what's he repenting from? What's he doing to Shuba from? What's he turning from? Hmm. You got to really watch the historicity. You got to know what's going on in his day. Because you had a very specific group of Parashim at Zedekim. You had the Zedekim who were in control of the high, high court, while the, the Parashim only held the, the seats in the lower court which means their authority wasn't anything like the Zedekim. Wow. They were holding all the cards, you know. You might as well just go folding now. <laughs> yeah. You know, let's go. And Shaul, who sat under the feet of Gamliel, and whether or not he's the one who's mentioned in the Talmudic text, he probably is. You just have to pin down precisely when. Yeah. Um, that requires some research, I think. Um, Absolutely. I, um, I do know that our school does have a book, uh, The Introduction to the Talmud, and I think it does get into the, the Talmudic rabbis, you know, the sages. Um, so it does... also has that which uh, Shlomo Ben Hillel, shouts out to Shlomo, may he live and be well. Uh, he actually, I think he said it was Hillel or Gamliel Hazakin, I think. I could be wrong, but there's there's Gamliel the first, there's Gamliel Hazakin, and then there's Gamliel the second, uh, which Gamliel the second is later than the first century. So... There's two Gamliels during the timeline of Mashiach's life, which is interesting because there's an overlay there with uh, how long they would have been around to be able to teach when Shaul comes up. Yeah. And see, the so. impression I get from Acts 
those two chapters leading up to Shaul's Teshuva mm-hmm. is that Gamaliel doesn't seem to be in that tight-knit group of Parashim who are holding no. to their own personal Holocaust. Yeah. Because he did tell the Sanhedrin or the Beit Din, be careful what you do with Peter and John. Because then he recounts, he recounts the tale, the incident with, uh, I forgot the name of the person that he that Gamaliel mentions in Acts. Yeah, I'm going there. Um, that he yeah, started, he started an <laughs> uprising. Yeah. And it failed. And so Gamaliel points out to the Beit Dean, if this thing is up, men, it's going to fall apart. It's going to come to nothing. But if it's Hashem doing this, then you're going to find yourself fighting against Hashem. Which turned out to be the very case. Because he, Hashem kept sending a Moloch to the prison, getting him out. Yeah. Peter and John, you know, that. what does that tell you? You know? You know, and the name spread, you know, and then they could brought him before the Beit Din again and said, you continue to spread this name. You tend to put the blood of this man upon us. Um, yeah, so it's Acts chapter five. Yeah. Okay, so we're around 39. That's the key verse that you mentioned. Um, some time ago, this is verse 36. Uh, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men joined him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed and it came to nothing after him. (laughs) Oh, he's bringing up a lot. (laughs) After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and drew people away after him. He too perished and all of his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or endeavor is of human origin, it will fail. Gotta love that. Gamaliel not pulling any punches. He's just like, That's it, man. He's just telling me like it is. Don't stress. Put your hammers down. Like, it ain't gonna work. So if you're telling them, don't teach in his name. That's totally fine. You already think they stole his body. You already think they're false witnesses anyway. So why are your feathers even ruffled? Are you... Are you believing more than what you're actually standing for? Or is this, you know, but without going into all that, he just says, you know what? Just let him go. If it's human origin, like you think it is. <laughs> you know, I, I sense a little bit of a uh, kind of like a, hey, guys, you, you're putting yourself in a position since you're being so uh, staunch about telling them not to do this is kind of like are you giving validity to their teaching because because you're pretty hyped up about it right now so yeah um that don't reminds, you love that because i know it's you not know what that reminds me of 
what I was reading from Tora Wellsprings that there's this story in there that is so good that relates to this. Oh my about, goodness! About anger. Okay. Um, Which one? Is this one. Okay, the section on peace. Okay. It states, uh, Masay 3338, this Parsha. Um, Aharon HaKohen went up unto Har Hahar according to Hashem's command and was Niftar there. Yeah. In the 40th year after Bnei Yisrael left Mitzrayim on the first day of the fifth month. Mark of Rosh Hodesh. Uh, that, that's his Yarzate. That's his Yarzate, man. <laughs> I, I just stopped when I looked at that. I was like, that's I the, know. the beginning of the nine days. <laughs> Man. Please tell me you're going to read the part about uh, us continuing Aharon's legacy. <laughs> Aharon okay. was Niftar on Rosh Hashanah, just like you said. Aharon is renowned for his love of his fellow men. As the states in our vote, Avo. Dav Shal Aharon Ohev Shalom Rodef Shalom Ohev Et Habriot Ha Me Korban La Torah. Be from Aharon students. Love peace, chase peace, love people, and draw them to Torah. Eziarzate is Rosh Hodesh Av, the month that the Beit Hamikdash was destroyed because of Sinat Kinam, baseless hatred. We rebuild the Beit Hamikdash by following Aharon's ways of seeking peace. That's the part, dude. We we rebuild. But by... we love each other when we pursue peace and chase after it and build one another up. What is what does Jude say? Build yourselves up in your most holy emuna. That's the temple. Yeah. Okay, this is the part where I, that I really liked. All right, that, really, that spoke to me. There's a Rav of B'nai Brak who travels to a nearby city every Arab Shabbos to answer halakhic questions in the Beit Dean of the community. He travels there by taxi. One week, the taxi driver was a new Baal Teshuva, and he was listening to a religious radio station. Bro, you realize this this account <laughs> is a convert schooling arrive, like not in a derogatory sense, but it's just kind of yeah, like yeah, I know this is a I'm cabbie, like, man. I think it's in the Bronx, man. Like you yeah. Know? <laughs> The Rav liked to use his traveling time to study Torah and the radio disturbed his concentration, but he figured that the taxi driver might need the Devre Kizuk that was being played over the radio, so he decided not to ask the driver to turn off the radio. The divine assistance, man, come on. <laughs> that one time where you should not be intimidated yes, by your fellow Jew. Because you just never know. The fact that the Rob was like, you know what? I usually don't want the radio playing, but I'm going to let it play. Because maybe he needs it. And then all of a sudden, because the Rob sacrificed himself, 
the the Chizuk actually came to him. And it's just kind of like the give and take relationship between each other. Oh my gosh, it's so powerful. He heard, he heard a listener call in and say, today is the 24th of Tibet. The Yarzate of Rebbe Moshe Mordecai of Lilov, a blessed memory. And I want to share a wonderful story of Ruach HaKodesh and of Midos Tovos that I heard with my own ears and saw with my own eyes. When the Rav heard this introduction to his story, he put down his safer and focused on what the person was saying. Come on, man. The man said, I was present at Rebbe Moshe Mordecai's Friday night tish, and someone new came in. Someone who was never before at Rabbi Moshe Mordecai's tish. The Rebbe called him over immediately and whispered something in the man's ears. And then the man rushed out of the Beit Midrash. I was in a Bakur at the time, and my friends and I wanted to know what this was all about. So we followed this man, and we asked him to tell us what the Rebbe told him. He didn't want to say, but uh -oh. we insisted, and this is what he told us. My wife and I have an old debate regarding where to light the Shabbos lect. I say that it is better to light the lect on a shelf in the dining room, because then there's more room on the table and there will be fewer halakhic sha'alos related to the lect and mukse. But my wife wants to light the lect on the Shabbos table because that's where her mother zins lect. Every week I prepare the lect on the shelf, then I go to shul. And every week she takes the lect off the shelf and places them on the table and lights them there. It makes me very angry. This week, before I left, I told her that if I come home from shul and find the lect on the table, I won't make kiddush. My heart kind of sank when I read that. And I won't, yeah. and I won't eat the seuta. You know what? I'm thinking to myself, why do you say that? Why do you let those words leave your mouth? You can't take that back. And it's Shabos. Come on. That you're speaking of. You, oh, my goodness. I, I'm like. <laughs> yeah. This was be, pretty intense, bro. Yeah, it is. Obviously, by doing so, he will only be hurting himself. That is so true. No seyuda, no kiddush, but that is the nature of makloket. One harms himself more than he harms anyone else. Ain't that the truth? If you're going to come away with anything from this story, it's that right there. Yeah, so... Just for our listeners who may not understand what lect or mukse or sha'alos are, those are, uh, number one, lect is a totally a Yiddish term. Um, but basically, we're talking about lighting the candles. And, you know, when you light candles, the woman is not allowed to move them. Per halakha, anyway. But there's this whole aspect here of, you know, 
Uh, well, actually, could you read the conclusion of it, or are yeah, you going to keep? Yeah, should read the conclusion. Then, then yeah, because the way the way it's written, we'll just, yeah, we'll leave it there. <laughs> I know. <'Cause, laughs> yeah, I don't want to kill it. <laughs> but anyway, we're talking about candle lighting. We're talking about halakha. Oh boy, it, it gets really good. I mean, <laughs> tonight I come home and saw the lect on the table. I immediately left the house and went to the bait midrash. As I sat in the Beit Midrash, I heard Zemiros coming from Reb Moshe Mordecai of Lilo's Beit Midrash. I decided to go there. I anyway didn't have a place to be. The Rebbe immediately called me over and whispered in my ear that the purpose of lighting the Shabbos candles is for the sake of peace. If you make a makloket over it, the purpose is forfeited. I'm stunned by the Rebbe's Ruach HaKodesh, and now I'm going home to bring peace to my home. <laughs> the taxi reached the destination, and the Rav left to go to the Beit Din. He was glad that he heard this inspirational story of Ruach HaKodesh, which teaches us to avoid Maklokit. That day, as the Rav sat in the Beit Din, a man came in and said, I have an old debate with my wife regarding whether it's better to light the Shabbos candles. I say that it's better to light the candles on a shelf attached to the dining room wall. And my wife wants to light the candles on the table, just like her mother does. What does the Rav say? Where should we light the candles? The Rav was astounded by the Hashkaga practice. It was the same question that he heard in the taxi. He told the man that he doesn't know the answer regarding whether it's better to light the candles, but of one thing he is certain. The purpose of Shabbos Lect is for peace, and therefore that factor should be given great consideration. You know what's one of the shiur that we sing when we welcome Shabbat? Shalom Aleichem. Exactly. <laughs> Man. Come in peace, O ministering angels, of angels King. of the exalted one, the king who reigns over kings, the holy one, blessed be he. When you sit, sit in peace, O angels of peace, Angels of the Exalted One. I'm quoting from my Sidur, by the way. Come on, Rukashim. The Holy One, blessed be He. That's, that's why that's early on in the liturgy of when you welcome Shabbos. Absolutely. Because we want peace to be in the home. And the one thing to avoid, which is the point of this story, avoid Maklokets during Arab Shabbat. The yeah. 24 hours prior to welcoming Shabbat at all costs. Why? Because the Satan, the Sitra Akra is working overtime. Yeah. Get your Yatsu Hurrah to stir things up, to get an argument going, this and that, whatever. That's why I just love it said the point is to light the candles. Exactly. 
Because you're bringing Kiddush down. You're just like, is it supposed to be on the table? Is it supposed to be on the, the mantle? It's like the Lick. candles are supposed to be lit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. The wife gets it, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, in the story, you know? You know, and then he gets into overcoming anger. It just fits so nicely. Yeah. You know, during the three weeks of the nine days, we try to increase peace because that will hasten the coming of the redemption. Build each other See, up. That's why it's up to us. We want to we keep crying out Mashiach now, but hey, it can be now in me, in you, in my wife, your wife, your kid, and everyone else in the group, you know, in the, in the strictly Torah group, you know? Yeah. Which you it's know, so much saying, in our hands. Saying Mashiach now should be more understood as actualizing that, you know, like yeah, because out of the the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mm. So saying Mashiach now should be actually the result of actions that you're taking. You know, I think about it as there's a. a Oh, it's, this is either a parable, but it's something recorded in the world tour. And it's a person who was going throughout the week and they were designating things for Shabbat. So they would go buy something and they'd be like, this is for the Shabbat. And there's a Hebrew phrase, something along the lines of Le Shabbat, like to the Shabbat. And it would go, they would go purchase a certain food and be like, Le Shabbat. Buy an article of clothing, lay Shabbat, you know, something that you're going to use for the Shabbat that you come across during your six days of the week. So immediately attached to your action is the reverence for the Shabbat so that when the Shabbat gets here, you already have your preparations already set. So I'm thinking about Mashiach now is like anytime <laughs> there's a Devar Torah going on, Anytime you're you're fellowshipping and interacting with fellow Jews and for that fact, the nations, because there is a beautiful thing that I was reading in Orchard of Delights this week back to Parashah Bamidbar, which the beauty of that, because we're concluding Sefer Bamidbar and it's just like, let's go back to the beginning before we end this book. The third temple is for the nations. You so the nations can be subordinate to the Shekinah, as the Orkaim writes on that parsha. Yeah. So if you think about it, what's our perspective of the nations? Because there's going to be a lot of non-Jews hanging out in the temple, and it's just kind of like. What does that even mean? What does that even look like? And you think about everything that surrounds the Mashiach, about him being an ensign to the nations, him bringing the Gentiles to submission to the Torah. And you know, like, what, and what, and what's the one thing you're not going to see that you that was present in the Second Temple era, in in the Master's Day and in the days of the Talmudim, the Sorek. The wall of separation, the court of the Gentiles. You're not going to see that. 
broke down the wall of separation. Holy this shit. is what Shaul was the talking about. The one new man, Ephesians 2 and 3, Romans 11, is clear on the matter. One. Kahila. Kahila Echad. One. I'm Yisrael. Yeah. Major change in the world, man. Uh, today, <laughs> one of our maintenance men <laughs> goes, you you do you read Hebrew, right? Like you you study that. I was like, Yeah. It's like, well, my wife and I, we're we're getting ready to to learn that and we're just trying to look for some tools and some things like that. I'm like, wait, what? He's like, Yeah, because you know, we want to read the old text and and really get down to what they're saying and get out of this whole translation fiasco. And I'm like, what are you saying right now? <laughs> He's just like yeah, you know, we just want to learn what the word actually says. Right, and I'm like, out, my job be dropping to the floor, and I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> you I, must so be beside I, yourself, man. <laughs> dude, I'm like minding my own business, and the maintenance man comes out with this. You might as well just throw a ranch and just a wrench <laughs> just hit uh, my country came out. Just throw a ranch. Just ranch me out. <laughs> but no, this kid, like, what? And so I told him, I was like, okay. And I tried to do the whole like beginner cookie level cookie cutters thing, you know, and, and he was he was so far beyond that. I was just like, wow, I just pitched T ball to a major league baseball batter. <laughs> oh, I, I was like, so you know, the first thing you want to do, you want to look up the Hebrew letters, you want to learn what's called the Hebrew olive bet. He goes, Yes, because the letters are the numbers, the numbers are the letters, each letter has a numerical value. And it's related to different passages that you can find in Torah when you get into the Gematria. And I'm like, bro. You? <laughs> You're like doing a double take, man. Like, I'm like, what, are you, what am I even here for? What is this deja vu? <laughs> anyway, the whole nation's coming into Torah. That's amazing, man. I love that. I'm oh, like, dude, you and I don't even give- talk about this. It doesn't get better than that. Man, that guy is just ready. Yeah, so I'm going to give him a book, I guess, <laughs> that uh, breaks down the Hebrew from a grammatical aspect because, <laughs> I mean, if he really wants to learn it, but I don't even think he needs it. Uh, but, <laughs> dude, I'm just saying, like, the whole thing here, uh, the, the getting rid of Makloka, increasing peace, building a temple, actualizing the Mashiach. I mean, this happens now. You know, all these different aspects, you know, the the nations are not so heathen like we think they are, you know, just because people eat pork and they go to church on Sundays or they're part of other faith systems. The core aspect of our souls come from Hashem. That peace is going to scream the closer we get to the Mashiach, the more we actualize the Mashiach, I should say. And it's not going to be anything that we have to force and pull out of people. It's literally just going to come drop kick us while we're working. Like somebody's going to throw a wrench at you and you're just going to be like, what was that for? You know, it's like, well, don't you want Mashiach? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I didn't think it was going to happen like that. You know, it's never what you expect it to be, you know? Dude, I I was not expecting that. And he just stopped. He put his tools down. It was like, 
just went on this whole thing. And I'm like, bro, what? <laughs> I just want to get a microphone out and be like, so how did this all start? <laughs> oh, interview on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Get my news anchor on, boy. I'll tell you what. Okay. <laughs> Do your uh, thing, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, overcoming anger. Um, during the three weeks and the nine days, we tried to increase peace because that will hasten the coming of the redemption. A primary counsel for attaining peace is to avoid anger. When angry, people say things they regret afterward, but a rift has already been created by that time. Therefore, train yourself not to speak when you're angry. That requires a lot of musar. Get you some. Self-control, one of the fruits of the spirit. Yeah. Like how much fruit are we eating? <laughs> or growing, <laughs> shall we say, because man is a tree of the field, like a fruit tree. You don't cut it down if it's producing fruit. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of touching on the story from the Rav um, about the lighting of the lect. Um yeah. That no one, you know, what Yeshua says, no one lights a candle and puts it underneath a bushel. I was wondering about that. But he puts it on a what? On the table. For all to see, and it lights up the whole room. That's the Shabbat candles. <laughs> Which, what is he saying when he you says know, you're the light of the world? He's talking about the Shabbat <laughs> for the world. Yeah. You know why? This is what I think. That all Jews are messianic, have messianic consciousness. Know that, believe that, and trust that. Oh, I do. Live it, breathe it, eat it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Because then you won't waste your time evangelizing, missionizing. Man. Because really, that, is, drop, that is a waste it. of time because what, what does it do? It draws you into a makloket. And what Asha will say, pursue peace with all men. Yeah. So from the Siddur, Ashkenaz, the first blessing before the Shema, God's finishing touch of creation is making shalom. Mm. Isn't it interesting that the birth of the Mashiach is supposed to be on Tisha B'Av, which was the day the temple was destroyed, which we read the, the Midrash about the temple being rebuilt in the fifth month so through fire. In the historical context, he was born on the anniversary of the first temple being destroyed, right? Is that the context for that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep. So when we look at this, we're talking about increasing peace during the nine days, like put the finishing touches on creation, which is the third temple, mm. which is Mashiach. It says the vessel that holds it all together, as stated in the Mishnah, God found no vessel to contain blessing other than shalom 
So in other words, increasing peace during the three weeks and especially during the nine days, this should have been the moment in time of us putting the finishing touches on creation. Because why? We were to receive the tablets on the 17th of Tammuz, go into the land so that during the month of Av, we would have been in the borders of Israel. The temple would have been built, never destroyed. That was the original game plan. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, um, to drive out all the idolatrous nations that were occupying Canaan at the time, you know, because it states in the Pasuk and Devarim that you should break down their altars. And you know how that was going to happen had we not had all of our failures? The clouds of glory. Oh, boy. You're just going to go in and just sweep out everything. We weren't even going to have to fight, bro. Like, Hashem would have done it. Literally. Because you know? it says in Devarim 9, Hashem crosses over before us as a devouring fire. Before us. Lifne Adonai. Lifne. <laughs> Which, by the way, the whole reason why Gad, I think this is Torah Wellsprings, maybe? See if this rings a bell? Okay. Gad was wanting to go ahead and take the, the territory that they already found uh, to be able to be um, possessed because they conquered Sikon and Og and they were like oh yeah this is good for our livestock and can we have this land and they're like well make sure your brothers get their inheritance first and actually why don't you go out before the people and there was a whole understanding of Gad going before the tribes and understanding that Hashem has to go before them so as long as they understand when they would go and lead the tribes into war that it was only guaranteed success if they understood that it was Hashem who was before them in the battles. So, in other words, Gad was seen as this very crazy, like, intense tribe. We're getting into the month of Elul shortly. We haven't even gotten into Av yet. But <laughs> Gad is the, the tribe associated with Elul and it's the whole thing about the tefillin, how we put the tefillin on our arm and on our head. Because Gad, when they sliced down the enemies, they sliced off arm and head, which is very gr grotesque and brutal. But all that to say, we think of Gad as like the mighty tribe who went forward, but it was only because they understood Hashem went before them. So the whole thing about Leafne, the whole thing about before, it's just such an incredible and intense thing because guaranteed victory only comes through Hashem being before us. Nice. But I read that in a source somewhere and um, <laughs> I thought it was Wellsprings, but it could have been. Uh, yeah, I don't know right now. <laughs> <laughs> I tabbed it though. I tabbed it. Um, that's interesting because that really connects nicely with this next pursuit that he quotes. Uh, it states in 31, 14, and 15 by Iksef Moshe al Pikudei Akil, by Omer Elihem Moshe Akai Kaitem, 
Moshe became angry at the officers of the army, and Moshe said to them, did you let any of the females live? Why is Moshe's name mentioned twice? Oh, I love this drop. This tour will Yeah, in this Pesukim, okay. why is his name mentioned twice? It could have said Vyomer Elihem. But no, why does... See, this is the question I always ask. Why does the Torah phrase it this way? There's always something in the grammar. Always. Because it's part of the Peshat. And he, you know, and he said to them, it could have said that, but no. The Torah doesn't phrase it that way. And we sh would understand that it was Moshe who spake since Moshe's name was written just before. Rev Zalman Sortskin, of blessed memory, Oznaim uh, Latorah explains that Moshe's name written twice implies that the two Pesukim shouldn't be read in one breath. In Pasuk 14, Moshe became angry. Vayikzef Moshe, bam, he becomes angry. That's it. And he became angry, Moshe. Grammatically, that's how the Torah is phrasing it. Because that's a verb. It's on the katal stem. Meaning it's, put, it's an active voice verb. So, Moshe became angry, and he knew that if you speak when you're angry, you're liable to say something you will later regret. Therefore, he took a break before responding to the issue that upset him. This is why his name is mentioned twice. Because look at what it says, you know, Vayomer Elihem, Moshe. We have the break from one pursuit to the other. Because he, he cooled down. Like when you buy a lemon, you get upset. In California, they have a lemon law. You get a cooling off period when you realize you bought a lemon so you can take it back. Say, hey, 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 hey. You know? All right, all right. I sold you a lemon. I'll make it right. <laughs> when you're trying to get what? A car. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, so the source was Torah Well Springs that yeah. you just quoted. The yeah. source was also Torah Well Springs that I quoted. <laughs> and it was basically a barbanel. And the key phrase was uh when Gad put their trust in Hashem, they will succeed. So Leaf Nay Hashem. Yeah. Therefore, Moshe's name is written a second time as the two Pesachim didn't happen at the same time. Mm. There were Baalei Musar who would only get angry while wearing a specific suit when something roused their anger. 
They... Where is my super suit? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Mr. Incredible here. <laughs> Dude, that would be like the perfect way to be like Musar. The Incredible Musars. Or something, I don't know. <laughs> Wife's gone. I put it in storage where you won't find it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, didn't speak before putting on that designated suit. <laughs> Man. This gave them time to calm down and to think things through. That's why I always keep you- my with me. <laughs> <laughs> the Segula of Le Lover Zadakim is to put water in the mouth and to hold it there. The main mm-hmm. thing is to push off responding for a later time when you are calmer. Take a break. A water break. Go <laughs> <laughs> take a cold shower, will you? <laughs> yeah. Reb Kaim uh, Bolozainer of Blessed Memory writes in a letter to his grandson before his grandson's uh, Kashuna. Don't be angry and don't carry any complaints in your heart against any person. Certainly, don't show your anger towards others. With patience, one gets what he wants much more and much easier than what one accomplishes with force. You know, this is something my father always told me. You can't force things to happen. I mean, so true. The Mishnah in uh, Vote 511 says that there are four types of reactions to anger. Arba Midot, Beidaot. The best behavior renders the man a Hasid. Le Kase Leka Os. Uh, they rot so those who don't become angry easily and can quickly be appeased. The Hesed Le Abraham, the cheetah's grandfather in Ahavabe Ta'anugin on Avos, asked why doesn't the Mishnah state an even better behavior, a person who doesn't get angry at all? The Hesed Abraham answers that Hashem didn't create the world for Malachim. He made the world for people who have bad tendencies and work on improving themselves. A person who never gets angry is a Malach and not a Hasid. Therefore, the ideal situation is for someone to be Kasei Lakaos, rarely getting angry. We repeat this to encourage people and to remind them that they are human and anger that arises occasionally is to be expected. The world was created for people like you and everyone must strive to reach the level of a Hasid, which is a pious one. I love that drop because this points to Teshuva. Yeah. Making it right. Drawing closer to Hashem, like whatever you want to put there, not whatever you want to put there, but to that point of, you know, 
a, a Malak versus a Hasid, you know, a Hasid. When you're talking to Shuva, by the way, even, even a Zadik who's never sinned, a perfect Zadik can make the Shuva. Likute Torah talks about that. But to the point that you're mentioning here, this is the reason why the earth was disobedient when it put forth trees that didn't produce fruit. Because this was a teaching to mankind that says, you know what? You could send to Hashem, but you can make it right. Because guess what? In the Olam Haba, <laughs> the earth is going to produce trees that taste like fruit. So you'll literally be able to eat the tree and its fruit and have taste. Unlike it was in the beginning. To all to point to us that maybe when we start out, maybe we don't do things appropriately. You know, especially when we enter into Judaism for the first time, lots of converts, you know, lots of halakot to get into and, and things like that. A lot of stuff we may not do right, but that's at the beginning. And may that be only at the beginning, because as we go through and, and continue to have our little uh, ups and downs, that the whole point is continuously making teshuva, continuously finding those breaches in the walls so to speak, and those repairs that we mentioned, you know, and let's, let's get those taken care of. Yeah. That's way more important than being as if you're a, a heavenly creature in the midst of creation. Yeah. So continuing with the rumination, um, both traditional Christianity and Hasidic Judaism have attempted to ask and even suppose some answers to the questions of sin and repentance. Christianity has posited opposing theories of predestination and free will. Hasidic Judaism has given us the concept of tikkun olam, repair the world, and provided not only the questions regarding the origin and purpose of sin, but some supposed answers as well. But all of these are only man's feeble attempts to explain away nagging questions about our questions, that there is something inexplicably beyond our questions. No doubt the answers are even more remote. However, we only really know what we have been told. Try as we might to plumb the depths of philosophy in the end, what we are really left with is what scripture clearly tells us. And it tells us quite plainly that sin is rebellion against the commandments of Hashem. And it tells us that he hates sin. It tells us that the correct response to him is always simple obedience. Call it tikkun olam or teshuvah. Call it repentance or surrender. In the end, it's the only action that we are truly free to take in response to our undeniable rebellion against the instructions of the Almighty. When we begin to ask such things as, what instructions? What commandments? Of course, we're denying the necessity of repentance. When we begin to make excuses such as, God doesn't really expect me to do, say, not do, fill in the blank, does he? <laughs> 
We are only delaying the absolute necessity of simple obedience when we argue that something does or does not apply to us because we are Jewish or because we are Gentile. We are still denying the single acceptable response to the Almighty. Repent. Shuv. You know, that whole aspect of doubt in the midst of rebellion is really what sticks out to me. You know, because as much as it is taught, you know, hey, you don't have to do any mitzvot. You know, that's the Old Testament. You know, we do things differently now, you know, and things like that. We have an app for that, whatever that means. <laughs> we have an app for that. <laughs> that's pretty much, yeah. You see a plethora of those. <laughs> yeah, and it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, there's still an understanding that these things are here and they exist. And if you're really going to be against it, you know, like, number one, is there a source? Is there really a source that says, you know what? Don't light candles. Don't keep the Shabbat. Is there really a source for that? You know? Is there really a source that that really points out you should not love your neighbor as you love yourself? You, Which, by the way, did we not just mention the rest of the mitzvot hang on that? <laughs> yeah. So, that, that means kosher slaughter, Shabbat, Sukkot, Yom Kippur, you know, just a few of those things. Shaking the lulav. Like, that's connected to loving your neighbors you love yourself. And so, to be an outright rebellion and not doing Torah, I mean, it's just kind of like, there's there's a little amelic in there. There's a little doubt. You know, kind of like uh, Gamliel telling the, the uh, Bet Dean, you know, Hey guys, let them be. If this is human origin, it's going to fail. Because they're so adamant about, hey, you can't be teaching in that name. Like, we killed him. We're not doing that. You know, it's just like, I think you have a little doubt there because if you're so worried about us teaching in a dead person's name, you know, like, what good is that for you? You know, so we stop teaching in his name. It's just like, so... Does that change his status or something? Is he now alive because we don't teach in his name? Or is he alive because we teach in his name? Or is he dead because we don't teach in his name? Like, what are you really getting at, you know? So it's just kind of interesting to me how in rebellion, there's, there can still be an element of doubt. It's kind of a paradox. That's interesting you mentioned that because I, I thought of how all the Hasidic texts that you see quote a lot of you know like uh, the Baal Shem Tov um, or the, the, the most recent uh, Louis Victor Rebbe Menachem Snearson Who's, who, who's back in the 90s, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, his teachings are everywhere. Is he dead? I would, that's the question I would postulate. Because wow. look at all the adherence to, to his teachings. All the Hasidism. All the Kabbat houses. All the Kabbat texts that you see. You've got a website. There's one whole section devoted to Menachem Snearson of the website. Ask the Rebbe. Wow. Learn about him. How is that different from the Gospels? They, they attached themselves to him, to his teachings. It is no different than us who attach ourselves to the master, who is the true Zadik, who laid down his life as a ransom for many. You know, what you're bringing down is like pure gold right now. Like, <laughs> that's amazing. I've never thought of it like that. Um, that's why they yeah. say Yaakov never died, by the way. They refer to him as the perfect one. Yeah. And you know why Yaakov never died? Because as long as Yisrael exists, mm-hmm. it's considered that Yaakov is alive because his dream and his vision of making Hashem one in the world is being actualized in his children. So as long as the children are alive, the parents are still alive. Then look at the work of Breslov. Yeah. You know, Likute Mohoran. I mean, there's just a wealth of insight there, you know, um, the Tanya. Yeah. You know, the writings of the Arizal, the Kayan Vital, who was his chief disciple. He continued his um, works, you know, his teachings. And the Arizal only lived 39 years. Right. And Yeshua only lived 33. You know, that that just speaks volumes. It's like what Yochanan says at the end of his Basora. All the books in the world cannot contain all that Yeshua did if we were to write them down. Right. Which, of those 33 years, Yochanan is really speaking about the last three. <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's the amazing part. And the fact that he spent most of his time in the temple. Yeah. You know, it's... I think most people forget, you know, that he never actually the gospels don't record him bringing an offering 
Huh. Wow. But yet he never went into the inner sanctum, the inner environs of the temple. It was always the the outer courts. The courtyard. Where he taught. Because he knew the, the laws of purity. Unless you're saying his teachings were the offerings. He who does not take up his execution stake and follows after me cannot be my Talmud. Or he yep. who does not deny himself. The Kabbalah there in that statement. Self-nullification. There's something along the lines of those who study Torah don't need to bring a sacrifice. Um, Because what is that source? Because I'm thinking about the fact of since Yeshua is the Torah made flesh, the ultimate Corbin, because what is the Torah? You know, it is the Torah, the letters, the words of Hashem on parchment, you know, also etched in the stones. You know, Yeshua is the chief cornerstone, you know, and things like that. And inside the Torah is where you find the sacrifices. But that's just yeah, a couple things true. off my head without the source. <clears throat> And you have Baigra being the central book of the Torah, the centerpiece, if you will, speaks of Mashiach. Yeah. On the deepest level I could possibly think of, because to understand Baigra is to understand, you know, Mashiach. It's also to properly understand Hebrews. Um, but there's this other really good story in the Torah Wellsprings. Um, mm-hmm. Kedushah guarding your eyes. The following story happened in Paz, Morocco, 250 years ago. A hunter would catch wild animals and sell them to the zoo owned by the king of Morocco. Once he caught a tiny, tiny lion cub. And he decided to keep it for himself. When the cub grew larger, the hunter tied a rope around its neck. He tied the other end of the string to an iron gate that stood between his property and the street. He felt confident that this was safe enough and that his pet wouldn't cause any harm. Once, (laughs) just baby tiger. (laughs) Talking lion cub here. (laughs) (laughs) Once two Jewish merchants came to Paz and bought clothing material at the market. As they were packing up the material to bring it to their hometown to sell, they realized they needed a bit more rope. Let's go back to the market. I saw someone selling a roll of rope there. I guess we don't have a choice, said the other, but it's a shame that we have to go all the way back to the market. 
Also, we will probably have to buy the entire roll and we only need a few meters. It will be costly. They started going towards the marketplace. Suddenly, one of the merchants cried, Stop the horses! And he jumped out of the wagon and he checked to see if he saw correctly. Yes, a heavy rope was tied to an iron gate. His partner joined him to see what his excitement was all about. I found what we need, the merchant told his friend, and he began untying the rope. Kasve Shalom said the other, that's a, a Geneva. <laughs> the other merchant replied, even if you're correct, it's an Avera, but it's a minor Avera. Remember that. How much do you think this rope cost? Besides, the owner probably forgot that it's here. Furthermore, the merchant said, pulling his most convincing argument, we need it for our Parnassa. People think that for Parnassa, everything is permitted. I refuse to have anything to do with this, said the other merchant, and he climbed back onto the carriage. The merchant untied the rope and began pulling it. At first, the rope didn't come easily. He felt a tug. Something was holding it back. He figured the rope was under some stone, so he pulled harder. The rope was loosened, and he pulled it until he came face to face with the lion. The lion realized it was free. It ran out of the yard and attacked the merchant. The merchant in the carriage heard the shouts and the lion's roars, and he looked out of the carriage, but it was too late. His partner wasn't alive anymore. Twenty mourners, the late merchant's wife, his siblings, and his children sat Shiva for this merchant. A rav at the Shiva said, if we learn a lesson from what happened, it will be Lilui, Nishmoso, for his benefit in heaven. He thought taking a rope was a small sin, nothing serious, but this resulted in his demise and 20 mourners. Let's learn from this that every Avera is severe. There is no such thing as a tiny Avera. And note three on that, there is no such thing as a small mitzvah. Each mitzvah is extremely precious to Hashem. And I would quote the Avot, be as diligent in a light mitzvah as you would in a heavy mitzvah, for you don't know its reward. Yeah, one example of what people call a small avera is when people aren't cautious with their eyes. They think it's a small avera because they didn't do an action, but actually it is very severe. It's like uh, chipping away at the dam. Right. One little rock at a time. And pretty soon you got this big hole going and pretty soon the water applying pressure eventually breaks through and then it floods or you pull on that rope long enough you're gonna be face to face with those- <laughs> and no you're not daniel <laughs> yeah that that story was like 
Wow. The results of, oh, here's some rope. It's like, oh, so you're just going to steal somebody's rope? Yeah, oh, it's just a good point. Time. You're going to steal somebody's rope? There, there's two of Vera there. <laughs> I just want to share a personal uh, story about not stealing. One of the biggest things to understand as a mitzvah in Torah is returning a lost item. So much so that the halakha is that there is an actual podium, a, a soapbox, if you will, or platform of some sort designated in the temple for three pilgrimage festivals. If you find a lost item, you're supposed to spend the three pilgrimages. So if you find it on Shabbat you got all the way to the following Pesach. You bring that item back. You stand on this platform while everybody's coming in. And you're like, lost item. Anybody found, lost this or whatever? Obviously, you can announce it along the way between then. But if you're for some reason, no one's responding or whatever, you have to go through all three of the pilgrimage festivals standing on this spot in the temple <laughs> And if they don't, if this not claimed by the three, the three festivals, it becomes yours. So that's a halakha, right? So that's a, a mitzvah that you get to do for a whole year, <laughs> wow. which is crazy. People put someone's integrity to the test. Man. <laughs> like, first of all, the the ridiculousness of that when it comes to why are we not doing Torah? You know, why is Torah not a global thing? <laughs> I mean, to that level, like, oh, my gosh, I lost my phone. I wish uh, I hope nobody took it. Oh, my gosh, please don't let me lose my phone. You know, if somebody's got your phone and they're holding on to it. They're protecting it like it's their stuff. Talk about loving your neighbors. You love yourself. Talk about how easy the mitzvot are. Talk about how deep the mitzvot are. That's OK. That's beside the point. The point is. I was reading this and someone left a pin on our workstation where we sign out all of our stuff at work. I notice I'm bringing up a lot of work stuff, but it's where it's where things happen. I don't know. It's crazy. So the shift lead grabs the pin is like somebody going to need this pin because they left it here and I know they're going to come back for it. So I'm going to hold on to it. He held on to it. Nobody came back for the rest of the day. So the following day, as people were coming up to sign out their work, he was like, hey, this your pen, this your pen, this your pen. Nope, nope, nope. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is blowing me away because it's a little thing, so it seems. But as you just read, things that we consider little are actually not. What's actually connected to all the little things is a lion. <laughs> you know? And whether that be the lion of Judah or the lion that's going to eat you, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but wow. it was just, it was such a powerful thing to me to think, oh my gosh, these people don't know that they're doing a Torah mitzvah right now because number one, no one stole the pen. And number two, someone is taking it upon themselves to say, I'm going to find the owner of this pen. So. I mean, just to the point of being a bystander of that, I was just kind of like, wow. The mitzvot are so powerful. 
not just for the people who are doing them, but for the people who are seeing them, which makes me think about our witness in the world. Sometimes I think we can be in our own little zone. Like we go to the market, we're like, of course, I'm buying kosher food, you know, and we're doing Shabbat. So, of course, we're not out and about, you know, on the seventh day. And, you know, we just do we just do things because like we're so focused on Hashem, right? But people are watching us <laughs> and they're being impacted on so many levels. And I'm just thinking to myself, I just saw someone not steal a pen and try to find the owner. On so many different levels, that impacted me to where I was just like, wow, the people I work with, this is saying something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's like, um, I went to... Uh, Yeah, I went to the T-Mobile store last month to pay my bill and I was coming out and someone kind of said, sir, sir, you know, can you spare some change? And the interesting thing is when I pay my bill, I got some change back. So I wound up giving it to him because he needed a bus fare. Wow. Right there. That was Hashem right there. Giving me the opportunity to do Zadaka. And I did it. And it was nice. You know, you mentioned a word in Yiddish a while. Well, I don't know if it's Yiddish as much as it is Hebrew, really. You said Hashgacha Pratis. Yeah. Hashgacha Pratis. That, what you just mentioned, is Hashgacha Pratis. Like, someone needed change, just so happens, oh, I got change because I paid my bill. And that change was able to help someone. So just learning different terminology throughout the ruminations, I think is really neat that, you know, as we're getting into the sources, we're also learning Hebrew. (laughs) Yeah. Getting more Yiddish under your belt, too. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So Lecht is candle lighting and Hashkata Pratis is Hashem providing an opportunity. Yes, um, on page 28 of the Torah Wellspring, because I'll tell us that the Beit Hamigash was destroyed because people didn't guard their eyes. This is alluded to in the Pasuk in Ica 116. My eye, my eye drips water. Sefer Yetzirah teaches that each month represents a limb of the body, and the two eyes symbolize the months of Tammuz and Av. The two eyes? That each month represents a limb of the body, Mm -hmm. and the two eyes symbolize the months of Tammuz and Av, the months associated with the Korban. It states in Iov 31.1, literally Iov is um, uh, Brit, Kerutale uh, Ene, Fema, 
Ahavu Nan Al Betula. Literally, Iob is saying that he guards his eyes so he doesn't understand why he's being punished. Rabbi Shmelke of uh, Nicholsburg, a blessed memory, said that we can translate the pursuit as follows Berit Keruta Le I am cautious with my eyes in the months of Tammuz and Av, the months represented by the eyes. Therefore, Ma Ma Atuvunan Al Betula. Why should I think about a Besula, a virgin? The virgin alludes to Alu because the Mazo Alu is Basula, the virgin, the constellation. That's right. The Pasuk is saying, I'm careful with my eyes into Muz and Av, and therefore I am not afraid when Alu comes around. I'm confident that I will receive a favorable judgment on Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara in Tanit 24, when a bride, Kala, has beautiful eyes, she doesn't have to be checked to ascertain her beauty. Her beautiful eyes tell us that she is undoubtedly beautiful. The Kli Yakar notes that this isn't always so. Some women have beautiful eyes, but they aren't beautiful in their ways. Furthermore, why does the Gemara tell us this? The Makaze Enyaim, uh, page six, answers that beautiful eyes hints to those who guard their eyes. Because I'll teach us that when you meet people who guard their eyes, you don't have to check them anymore to know whether they are righteous. The beautiful guarded eyes are a sign that they are beautiful in all ways. So you know who uh, those words echo. Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, this verse right here. That's the first thing I thought of. Um, <laughs> uh, hang on, pulling it up here. Uh, Matthew six twenty two. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Six twenty-three. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And what is he really referring to when he says tovene? Good eyes. And then in a rav, in a ra. A person with a good eye is generous. A person who is selfish has an evil eye. Going back Be to the Kisef, the mirror, the window. Yeah. And Belam. Belam used the evil eye upon us. Yeah. Very nice. Because the context of that is in between storing up treasure in heaven and not worrying. Mm. 
Yeah, the Gemara adds, if her eyes aren't beautiful, then she needs to be checked. Because when people aren't cautious with their eyes, there is a strong likelihood that they lack Yerat Shamaim in other areas too. Wow. It states, Devarine 2834, you will become insane from what you see. I and mean, get this, the word in Hebrew is Meshuga. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> the Koshev Makshavos from the Mishnah's Kakamim, a blessed memory, explains that the Pasuk is saying, if you aren't cautious with your eyes, you will have a Ruach Shatus, a foolish spirit, a touch of insanity, which is liable to bring you to all kinds of virus. As Kazal state in Sota 3, a person doesn't sin unless a spirit of insanity comes into him. Generally, the order is that the eyes see something and then the heart wants it. As Kazal say, Ein ro'eh, ehalev, homed. Thus, if you guard your eyes, you will be protected from many averos. You'll be freed from the temptations that lead to Averos. Yet we wonder why the Torah changes the order in the Pasuk. But Mibar 1539, uh, and get this, watch this word, Teteru. What does Moshe tell the spies to do in Parasal Shalaklaka? Got out the land, tour. Yep. Yeah, Akare Levavkem, Ve Akare Anekem. This is the Shema where we talk about the Zitzi. Yeah, but here's another case of grammar here. Watch it because why does the Torah phrase it this way? Why does it mention eyes after heart? Don't stray after the heart. What does Jeremiah say? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Above all things, who can know it? Mm -hmm. And what does this present generation say? Trust your heart. Listen All to your heart. Relationship guidance. I mean, no, you're not supposed to. This is this is part of the commandment to wear tzitzit. Um, yeah, the very same chapter. This is part of that mitzvah of tzitzit. Yeah, don't it's so funny. I was going to say this is so funny because when we look at the tzitzit, we're following after the heart, but it's of Hashem. Because remember, the last letter of Torah is Lamet. The first letter of Torah is Bet. That's Lev, which is heart. 32 paths of wisdom. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you should be following after the heart. But it's not ours. It's a shims. Yeah, don't follow after the heart and after the eyes. In this pursuit, the heart is mentioned first. Rav, Rav Mendel uh, Furtifas, a blessed memory, answers that sometimes the heart is the culprit. Because sometimes the heart desires to go someplace but it's hard to guard your eyes there. The heart pulls the person to go to that place. 
and then he sins with his eyes. Therefore, we say, Lo, Teturo, Akare Levavkem, Beakare Enekem. Don't let your heart cause you to sin with your eyes. We can also explain it this way it is known that people see what they want to see. I would apply this one to, to certain teachers. False interpretation, you know, bad interpretation. When Yeshua says, I have come not to abolish the Torah, but to cause it to stand up. And then he goes on and he says, you know, whoever breaks the least of these commandments, which just so happens to be Devarine 22, verse 6, regarding the mother bird and the baby and the, and the little birds. Seriously? Yes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Shall be called least in the kingdom, but he who teaches and does them shall be called great. Amen. Those who don't want to see forbidden things won't see them. And even if they do, it doesn't affect them as profoundly. So the order is correct. Guard your heart. Don't desire to see bad, and then automatically you will be able to guard your eyes. We will explain. Someone told the Lev uh, Simka Gur of blessed memory that it is hard for him to walk on the streets because it is hard for him to have Shemirat Anayim there. The Lev Simka replied, if it's hard for you to guard your eyes on the street, don't go there. The Rebbe remained silent for a few moments and then said, if your thoughts are immersed in Torah, whatever you see won't make an impression on you. Powerful. This is as we explain, if the heart wants Torah, it will hardly see forbidden matters. It isn't what he is looking for. Lev Simka added, when your thoughts are on Torah, these ta'avos, temptations, are disgusting for you and you don't want them. For example, when you walk on the street, <clears throat> you don't know how many cats there are because it doesn't make a difference. Similarly, when you are thinking Torah, nothing else matters to you. And if you accidentally see something forbidden, it won't affect your heart. That's amazing. Yeah. I think Which, we can speak from experience about that when we engage in Torah study. Yeah. Know, like we're doing right now. <laughs> what comes to my mind is the, the euphemism of seeing red, you know, when somebody gets angry. And it's like for us, when we're seeing Torah, we see life. We see life in everything. We see meaning in everything. This is why we look at verses and we look at, we take note of the spaces, we take note of the vowel points. You know, we take note at how many times a word is repeated. What's the first and last letter of the verse? You know, and we just, we see, 
like all the levels of interpretation, which, you know, when you mentioned about, you know, the false interpretations that are out there, it's just kind of like that's really showing people's heart. That's really showing what they want to see. And it becomes one of those things where it's a whole nother aspect to the three weeks of mourning. We should be mourning for the people who don't see. Yeah, you know? there, were, there were people who were praying for us when we couldn't see. Yeah. The source I was thinking of a while back was Minicote 110A. That says, anyone who engages in Torah study need not bring a burnt offering, nor a sin offering, nor a meal offering, nor a guilt offering. And this makes me think about the Hebrews passage where it says there's no longer an offering for willful sin. Because the only other offering that you can do, which is not really an offering, is teshuva, the repentance. And notice how it doesn't say because you're engaged in Torah, you're not supposed to make teshuva. You know, like, even if you're engaged in Torah, you still have to make teshuva. <laughs> Which is the whole thing about even Israel is called to repent, as well as the nations. Yeah, that kind of actually brings up another aspect of the Shema. Um, because in a sense you're taking an oath as a witness seriously you just put parsha my tote in the shema wow because i've been reading from this here we go hey beautiful segue i like that good job man <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to get into uh, the Nair Mitzvah from Mat, Mat, let's see, Masay. These commandments are divided into three groups of which some aim at perfecting our souls, some at perfecting our bodies, and others at ensuring that our property will be pure, i.e. that we will not be guilty of robbery and dishonesty. Concerning these three aspects of perfection, the Torah says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, i.e. the seat of your physical life with all your soul, i.e. the seat of your spiritual life and with all your might, i.e. with all your economic assets, Devarim 6.4. In Parashat Matot, the Torah deals with laws designed to perfect our souls. Our spiritual development, the laws dealing with vows contain the warning to honor all our utterances. Kako Holtzi Mepiv Yaaseh, he must carry out all that crosses his lips. Numbers 34. This is addressed to the soul. Because the power of speech derives from the attribute of wisdom, which itself is an outgrowth of the soul. Speech is only externalized version of one's thoughts. 
something that elevates man above all other living creatures. Man is called Midaver, a talking creature. This is why he must not profane his word. Lo yakel devaro. We also find that Onkelos renders Genesis 2.7, and I have quoted this many times. Vahi ha'adam le'nafesh kaya, as man became a talking spirit or speaking spirit. And that's from the art scroll, Onkelos. You're already aware that man has been designed along the superior lines of a higher world, that each one of his limbs is a branch of a tree in the celestial regions, and that the mouth he has been equipped with is meant only to enable him to proclaim the greatness of the Lord and to tell his praises. It is a vessel to be used only for the service of the Lord. This is what David meant when he said in Psalm 145, 21, my mouth shall utter the praise of the Lord. Students of esoteric meanings of the Torah are also aware that the root of roots of the soul reposes in the emanation of Binah. We know them from Ve'nah Nishma Sadeh. Uh, and the soul of Shaddai that gives them man, gives them understanding, Job 32.8. The three levels of our soul, Nefesh, Ruach, and the Shama, correspond to the world on three different levels. Olam Habriya, Olam Asiya, Olam Ha-Yetzira. In the still higher world of Asilut, these parts of the soul are found in the emanations of Bina, Malkut, and Tiferet, respectively. The Kabbalists have explained at length that this is where the source of vows is found. The word Shavuah, oath, is closely linked to Shava, i.e. the seven days of creation. The seven days are the time frame of the building of the world, Banin. Again, a word almost identical with Binah. A vow, Nadar, is called such when the person making the vow prefaces it with the words uh, Kari Alei, meaning that it is an obligation over and beyond that which emanates from Our sages in Sifre Matot 4 describe the difference between the relative strength of a vow and an oath as being that he who utters a vow is as if he swears by the life of the king, whereas he who utters an oath is as if he swears by the king himself. The author, too, buttresses his contention, quotes Kings, Two, where Elisha says to Elisha, Hai Hashem ve Hai Nefashekah im Aozbeka, 
as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. This may be why the Talmud in Shabbat 32 teaches that the death of one's underage children and possibly the death of one's wife are retribution for a person's failure to keep one's vows. All this is because Benah is Im Al Habinim, mother of the children. When one violates that principle, either the mother or the children may disappear, i.e. die. Kabbalists have seen an acronym in the word Nedar, dividing it into noon 50 and Dar dwells. The reference is to the emanation of Binah, which is the source of the Ha-Misim, Esrei Binah, the 50 gates of insight. Yeah, that's Humishim, Asrei Binah. We already stated that Binah is the location of the Nishamat Shadeh, and that the whole subject of Nidarim revolves around Binah, which is the root of Banim, and that Shavua is part of Banim, which is Shiva. Which is connected to the king himself. And then I, yeah, I actually shared this with you, and I quoted from Matthew 6. Yes. You got it? You want me to read it? Oh, yeah, go ahead, by all means. You quoted. Here, I'm just going to read it from over here. Stand by. Maybe. Okay, <laughs> that suits down, but all right, cool. We'll just go, but this is definitely something that's really cool to, to remember. Uh, there it is. Okay. No. Was it Matthew 6? Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Matthew 5. Okay, now here it is. Okay. Again, you've heard that our fathers were told, do not break your oath and keep your vows to Adonai. But I tell you not to swear at all, not by heaven, because it is God's throne. Not by earth, because it is his footstool, and not by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, because you can't make a single hair white or black. Just let your yes be a simple yes, and your no be a simple no. Anything more than this has its origin in evil 
So Matthew 5, 33 through 37. So, you know, again, we've said this before, but it's just so cool. You see how seamless the Gospels and the letters and are intertwined with all the sources. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, and then um, in the Parashat Massey, when he talks about the death of the victim, which is due, see, when the death of the victim is due to an unintentional act, however, the Torah does not consider him guilty of bloodshed. Clearly, the death of the victim was an act of God, i.e., the attribute of justice chose as its instrument someone who had committed some other undetected offense. The killer had unconsciously carried out God's design in all those cases where he had not planned to kill the victim with a lethal instrument. The killer has to flee to the city of refuge, one of the cities of the Levites. Those cities are regarded as sites of judgment. The Levites themselves represent the emanation of Gevurah in the pattern Pased Gevurah Tiferet, a pattern that corresponds to the respective levels of Kohen, Levi, Yisrael, and note that the first letter of each one of those of each of those words spells Kli vessel. Right. The unintentional killer must remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Thirty-five twenty-five. This is because when the body of the victim was slain, also his soul was taken from him and had to remain in exile until a time when God is in a favorable frame of mind. At the time the high priest dies, when his soul ascends to the celestial regions, the soul of the murder victim is then also allowed to proceed to those regions. We find that such is the case even when the souls in question had not been separated from their bodies through murder. A soul which is exiled may be released from such exile as a result of the death of a great person, i.e. a prominent Sadiq. The Mekor Kaim on the Zohar finds an allusion to the statement of our sages that the righteous may be granted children when they have died though they had no children during their lifetime. <clears throat> in the words, in the words, Kiba Ir, Me Kalto Yoshev Ad Mot. He has to remain in his city of refuge until the death. This means that as long as the soul of the righteous was held captive by its body, it could not become a parent. I mean, this is Yeshua. Right. He's the Cohen who's still alive. So yeah. we're chilling in his city. Yep, that's where we are. This is why we have to understand bought with a price. So I have to understand that our habitation has to be the Torah. It has to be the words of Hashem. Because if not, the uh, the avenger of blood, he will find us. 
<laughs> yep. So he just demonstrates retroactively that all of God's actions are based on truth and that he shows his mercy to all. A soul that is separated from its body and does not have any clothing to accompany it to the higher world since it did not leave children behind in this world and therefore lacks a goel needs to remain for a while in the city of refuge, i.e. a place where souls hover until the death of the high priest who is the Torah scholar. He does not require a goel. If the high priest leaves a widow and no children, the Liberite marriage rules do not apply to such a widow in the sense that she need not enter into a marriage with a brother of her late husband in order to perpetuate his name on, his, on this earth. In other words, your boom doesn't need to be performed. Wow. If she does so, nonetheless, it is for the benefit of other souls who are homeless in a region between this world and the world to come. These souls await the time when they can be suitably addressed. In order to proceed to their ultimate destination, the high priest, widow's late husband's continuity, uh, Shem, has been maintained even though he did not leave behind physical issue. So far, the commentary of the Mekor Kaim, the source in the Zohar for this, seems to be in Parashat Vayishev on 38.8, where Yehuda instructs Onan, his son, to marry Tamar, the widow of his brother. Don't you think it's interesting one of the case precedents in Torah for the Leverite marriage is done by the tribe of Judah? That one time where the king does a priestly duty. <laughs> yep. But this is also why Yeshua doesn't need to come from any specific tribe. Meaning he doesn't have to come from the tribe of Judah. He doesn't have to come from the tribe of Levi. Why? Because we were talking about this last week. That because of the order of Melchizedek before the sin of the golden calf, is this requirement does not yeah. apply. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews says, for the requirements of the heavenly Kohen Gadol are different than those of the earthly Kohen Gadol. That's right. Because the capacity that he serves in is in the heavenly Mishkan or the heavenly Ohel Moed. This is why he wasn't the Kohen Gadol in the second temple. Mm -hmm. That's why he never went into the temple. That's he why didn't... he never offered the sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Man. He offered up himself once and which, for all. Which is what Melchizedek does. He offers up after, the soul of the righteous. Yes, after the order of Melchizedek, he offered himself and he continues to offer himself upon that according to that order man this is where christianity christian theology goes so, so far off the derrick when it comes to this they think he's establishing something new no you completely misunderstand the order of melchizedek yeah this is uh 
this is cool. Rabbi brings us down. Rabbi Trugman Shlita this week on um, the seasons of the soul, talking about the calamities of the three weeks. He mentions that there's four ways to view time. One of the ways to view time is in a linear fashion, which speaks to why there was a point in time Yeshua was actually offered up. But there's another way to view time. It's the fourth level where there's past, present, and future all at once. And this one-time offering, how it's perpetual, falls into that category because in the heavenlies, there's still the offerings going on currently, even though we don't have a physical temple here on earth. Because we learn uh, when you study Parsha Vayikra, especially if you read Ladder of Jacob, and uh, you can read about that with uh, how the souls of the righteous are offered up on the heavenly altar. You know, and Memtet, or depending on what commentary, Mikael is the, uh, the, the Kohen and that temple uh, bringing those offerings. So just a really neat level of the Pashat. Yes, Yeshua was offered up. He offered himself. That's Melchizedek type stuff. That's why Abraham was able to offer Yitzhak. And it's called the Akira of Yitzhak. But it has the credit going to Abraham because he's the one who actually had to offer it. And we know that Yitzhak looked like Abraham. So it literally looked like Abraham was sacrificing himself. <laughs> you know, so I mean, just hit all these levels, you know, it's just like, it's really cool. And the fact that Yitzhak was in his 30s. There's that. Yeshua was in his 30s. Don't, isn't the sources say he was 37? Yitzhak was 37? Yeah, I think so. Not sure, though. You know why that's significant? What's the gematria of 37? Wait a minute, Hevel. <laughs> oh, now you got me going to the Ari. Oh, and the Gematria for Korok's name is 308, is 208 plus 37. Get him. And when Moshe was born, what did Yokeved say about him? That he was good. Tov. Because Moshe rectified all the good sparks that were in Hevel, 37. Because Hevel has the hay in his name. And Moshe has the hay in his name. This is what the Aris all says. That's, that's the really amazing part of that. Well... If you want to go to Rashi and keep it on the Peshat, it says that Sarah passes away at the age of 127. Thus, Yitzhak was 37 because Sarah was 90 when Yitzhak was born. Just do a little simple math right there. So... When you look at the Hevel aspect, rearrange Hevel, and you get Halev, the heart. 
So the Akira, the binding of Melchizedek, because remember, Abraham was Melchizedek at the Akeda. So the offering of Melchizedek is to offer the heart, is to offer Hevel, is to also offer Degel. What is Degel? Banner. His banner over me is love. And what do you love with? The heart. And Abraham gave a tenth of all the spoils to Melchizedek. And right. we know that he came down to that number when interceding for um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah. And 10 is the number required for certain prayers in the Siddur. And also in the commentary, in the Humash, for that Parsha, if I remember correctly, is also the number of cities that he also interceded for. Eight of them had yet to come up for judgment. It was Sodom and Gomorrah that came up before him, before Hashem. Wow. Hmm. Because Hashem says, will I hide from Abraham that thing that I do? Wow. Um, so to continue, <laughs> repent. It was the message in Genesis 3. It was the message in Genesis 6. It was the message at Sinai. It was the message of the prophets. It was the message of the apostles. It is the message of Mashiach. It is the good news message. It is simply repent. Teshuva. Hashem has spoken. He has defined his holy standard. It is the Torah. Disobedience is sin. Man's only response to that should be repent. Shuv. Man, we're hey, already getting ready for a little. <laughs> this is so great. It's better this way, don't don't you agree? Absolutely. We just like we mentioned before, actually hitting the record button. You know, it's already it's good to be ready now as opposed to the king's in the field. Oh my gosh, get my stuff. You oh, know, I'm ready. Hey, look at me. I'm <laughs> you know? And it's like we're not even celebrating too early because you know the sages say you can actually start saying Lashana Tova uh <laughs> after Tuba of. Oh wow, that's <laughs> they're not wasting any time. <laughs> yeah. So it's like we just finished the three weeks of mourning. Let's have a little celebration for all the other historical things that happened on Tuba Av. And it's like, by the way, Lashana Tova, may you be inscribed and sealed for a good life. <laughs> You're just like, it's 45 days before Rosh Hashanah. What are you doing? Yeah, it's 50 days from uh, the ninth of Av to Rosh Hashanah, isn't it? I think we mentioned that before. Uh, well, Tuba Ab's 40. Or is it from the first of Alul to Yom Kippur? That's 
That's 40, that's 40 days. days. Yeah. 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 The, I don't know what 50 days before Rosh Hashanah is because Tuba Av is the 15th, which is six days after Tisha B'Av. So, yeah, I guess it'd be the 10th of Av would be 50 days. Close enough. I mean, yeah, because you know what? It says the temple actually burned over into the 10th of Av. This is why some of the the observances are still in effect until midday of the 10th. So if you think about the beauty of what you're bringing up, as we transition from the completion of destruction, we go right into the 50-day period to get us ready for Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, it's like we're ascending back out of this. Yeah, because uh, travel out 50 days. I see what you did there. Yeah, you know, it's because many ways Yom Kippur is an ascension. Oh, because that's actually when we got the tablets. We never got yeah. the tablets on Shavuot. Moshe was up there, Yom Kippur. He was a he came down. Yeah, he came back down with the second set of tab the the second tablets, right? That's when, when we Kippur, got them. right? That's when we got them. So the renewed covenant. Yeah. And what came right after that? Get collect materials for the Mishkan. For the Mishkan because of the sin of the golden calf. Full circle. So yeah. So, so when it's like Hashem is saying that, okay, I'm giving you another 50 days to purify yourselves. And the day that you will be purified from your sins is Yom HaKippurim. Yeah. Because it says in that Parsha that I will purify you. Sprinkle clean water upon you. Yeah. Yeshua Ma'im Tehorim. Ka'im. And this is the understanding of Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur actually being likened to one day. Because the, the whole thing, like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are bookends. Yeah. You know, and really on Rosh Hashanah is determining your Yom Kippur. And Rosh Hashanah, both Diaspora and Eretz Israel, is one day. Two oh, days. Oh, it's two days in the day? Okay. Yeah. This is the only time where Yisrael keeps a two-day observance. Ah, okay. It's Rosh Hashanah. So, okay, so Yom Kippur is the one that's both Diaspora and Eretz Israel. That's one day. One day. day. Yeah. And the Shabbat preceding it is always uh, Shuvah Shabbat. Yep. Shabbat of return. Yep. And customary for the rabbi to give a long drosh and for it to be about Teshuvah and Yom Kippur. And the other, and coming back to the three weeks here, 
we have Shabbat Chazon, the Shabbat vision. The parallel of Shabbat Shuba. Yeah, where we recite the Kinan. Yeah. And I do have a sample from Art Scroll, and it's, to be honest, it's from the Holocaust, because this rabbi was the only survivor of his uh, yeshiva. And he wrote this in honor of all the victims of his, of his community and his shiva that were just totally wiped out. Wow. It's quite, it's quite graphic, you know, very, very detailed, you know, but yeah, it's one of those that I've read every year. It's the only Shabbat that I know of during the year where we're not necessarily Simcha. Right. You know, because that you got to heal him 137 in your head. I sat by the rivers of Babylon and there we wept. We sat and mourned for Zion. Our captors asked of us of a song and say, how can we sing in a strange land the songs of Hashem? You know, the, it's, are we lamenting over our sins? You know, we, you know, Ica. Jerusalem yeah. is plowed over. Um, are you familiar with the documentary Jerusalem Covenant City? Mm -mm. Uh, 2004. It's really good. It's available on Amazon. You may want to look into that. It's really good. I recommend it for educational purposes. Okay. But also from the standpoint that it just shows Hashem's faithfulness in spite of our sin and our depravity still. He reaches out to us. You mean while we were yet sinners? Yes. While we were in the world without God, with no hope. Boy, tell you these letters, man. <laughs> you begin to really understand, you know, what he's what he really means, you know. And you remove the veneer. <laughs> oh, just the update on the ten cities. It was uh, Genesis eighteen thirty one. And it was saying 10 men in, in the five cities. Um, 1830 says 10 men or 10 in each of a majority of the five cities. So there were five cities oh. that were up for judgment. But he prays for 50 because if you take 10 times five, that'd be 50 people. That's why he starts at 50. Yeah. So there's the tens and the fifties right there. Okay. So continuing on. Yeah. I knew 10 factored in there. Um, wasn't entirely certain. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so repent. Anything else remains pure and simple rebellion. Let others argue about whether some commandments apply to this dispensation or whether we are under the jurisdiction of the new covenant or whether a commandment applies to Gentiles or not or that God cannot require repentance for salvation or that denies grace. In the end, all those mechanizations machinations and lies are the same tactic the enemy has used since the garden as god said yep designed to get us to question the things we really do know <laughs> see this is why some things remain a mystery because Hashem wants it that way. Because then we're without excuse. Because that's what Shaul says in Romans 1. If Hashem commands us as his children, he expects us to obey him. And to disobey him is sin, period. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, Yom Kippur. Yeah, and this is why it says he will atone for you on that day. Yeah, he'll cleanse you. He'll purify you. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And we never think that. <laughs> and his word is not in us. John does not mess around here. He really just comes right out, man. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may, so that you may not keep on sinning. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Messiah Yeshua Azadik, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Shomer Mitzvotav. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. I think of the Nakash when he was talking about the tree. Like, did Hashem really say? Oh, we're in the dispensation of grace. You're just giving into that lie. Still eating the fruit. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. 
there's the Shema, Be'ahavta, et Adonai Eloheka, Be'kol Levavta, Be'kol Nafshevka, Be'kol Meodeka. By this we know that we are in him. First John 1 John 1.8. And Mashiach says, abide in me and I will abide in you. If you love me, keep my mitzvah. Love is a verb, by the way. Right. The two-letter gate, or the two-letter root, as they say, of love is hey, bet, which is hav, which is like an open hand giving. So the whole thing is better to give than receive. Yep. I know that that word begins with the LF, and... It's combined gematria is 26. And um, Levavka, you have the two baits there indicating the two sides or two inclinations. Yes, love him with your two hearts, your two inclinations. The Yetzer Tov and the Yetzer Ara. Yeah, which is back to the shiny labor that we were talking about at the beginning. Yep. So, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. <clears throat> just as he is pure. Whoever keeps on committing sin also commits Torahlessness, and sin is Torahlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not keep on sinning. Whoever keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. He's connecting with keeping the mitzvah with seeing him. Because the mitzvah are a shadow pointing to him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who keeps on practicing righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous which you know if we go back to the first john 1 8 through 2 first john 8 first john 1 verse 8 through chapter 2 verse 5 the righteousness comes from the fact that we're cleansed from all righteousness when we confess our sins So the righteousness basically is the absence of the rebellion. It's the absence of being without the Torah. Which means in the Mashiach where there is no sin and where there's purification, that's where the Torah is, that's where righteousness is, that's where obedience is. 
just thinking about the the simple way to look at the text to make it a circular uh, connection. You see, the questions that are unspoken may be deep, but the issue really is simple. When we disobey the words of the living God, that is called sin. The Hebrew word is kata, and it literally means to be off target. Nice. To go the opposite direction. Because the other meaning for the word Torah means to be on target. Mm. To hit the mark. And some to, you know, in Christian theology, oh, it's too hard. His commandments are burdensome. But Yochanan writes in 5 verse 3, and we know his commandments are not burdensome. Amen. When we obey, that is called righteousness. Christian theology is in direct contradiction to this. Yeah, because if you start following the commandments, you're considered to be a sinner and trampling grace underfoot. Yep. When we recognize our disobedience and obey, that is called repentance. So, to that point, wouldn't that be calling good evil and evil good? You trade darkness for light, sweet for bitter. Wow. When he says in uh, Yeshiahu 1, let us reason together. Ooh. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be as crimson, they shall be white as wool. And if you obey, you shall eat the good of the land. But if not, the sword. Yikes. Be devoured by the sword. Karev. Which is the same as Horeb, Mount Sinai. So the mountain will fall. Or like sages say, Navodazari turns it upside down. Yeah. You know, like a tub, and if they didn't accept, splash. <laughs> so what are we waiting for? Remember the Torah of Moshe, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. But the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Eliyahu Anavi before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Hashem. And he will turn 
the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Malachi 4, 4 through 6, but in the Tanakh, it's chapter 3. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, here we go. <laughs> you got this smile on your face. You're like, okay, now it's time for Rev Desley. <laughs> Oh, and you were bringing up Gad and Reuben earlier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, boy, this is going to be good. The tribes of Gad and Reuben. For Matot Masay. We know that every person's task is to increase the amount of Kiddush Hashem in this world. As we have explained previously in this volume, everything in the world can serve as a Kali for this sublime purpose. <laughs> Kohen, Levi, Israel. That's right. In our holy books, we find that there are holy sparks in exile, in the darkness of the world, and it is the task of Israel to release these sparks and restore them to their place of origin. We learn, too, that there are some sparks which are meant for each particular individual to redeem. They are sparks of his own neshama, which have been oh. taken captive by the Sitra Akra, the focus of evil in creation. So your own sparks... <laughs> that you like for per person to redeem that's amazing that that brings a whole new meaning to love your neighbor as you love yourself yep sleek i'm stopping you again <laughs> <laughs> you know that that's in many respects is a tycoon for our defense yours anyone else you know like that uh maintenance guy we were talking about earlier he's retrieving his spark from the citra Agra. wow as as we are yeah yeah you know that that's the thing is um so he's doing that because we're doing that. Uh, yeah. And that the, the Chafetz Chaim, where it says, I set out to change the world, but I didn't change it until I changed myself. <laughs> I had to start with myself. So, I mean, people really are bringing Mashiach the more we bring Mashiach. Yeah. Man, the scale is going to tip. This is going to be so great. Yeah, I mean, if we just keep at it and keep at it and do what Hashem requires of us with joy and gladness, knowing that we'll have our portion in the world to come, I go away to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be. Dude, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. Okay. 
<laughs> that always used to like just confound me, but it's just like, yeah, it's through the tikkun, it's through the spark of Mashiach. We can get to the place that he's preparing for us if we go the way. Yep. Which I was reading actually in a book of our heritage on the Bain Hamatrium series I'm doing. And it was literally talking about teaching transgressors the way. And it was all about the reason why the generation of the golden calf happened was because Israel was able to say, if anybody ever wants to come up to Hashem and say, I'm a lost cause, that this generation can go, well, we made the golden calf. So what about you? you know and so it was like we're able to teach transgressors the way of Hashem which the way of Hashem is repentance yep and I like what he says here next we are aware that these ideas allude to very lofty concepts whose full import is far beyond our comprehension however we shall try to make them as much as possible a little more comprehensible <laughs> love it I mean what does it say at the beginning of this rumination the first paragraph it's beyond our comprehension the power of free will all the obscurity in creation is capable of being transformed into a revelation of God's glory to human free will he who does righteousness is righteous, just mm. as he is righteous. Everything in creation holds within it the potential for Kedush Hashem. Every human being can change an item in from the impure. Of Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Every human being can change an item from impure to pure by making it a vehicle for service servicing Hashem it's in our Bruce. hands it's in yeah. our ability to do why because Bruce. he gives us the ability to do it yeah the reason I made that statement was because I was really expecting him to say yeah in the twinkling of an eye it can change because <laughs> I mean, that's literally what we're talking about, you know, like in an instant, as quick as you can say, Baruch Atah Adonai. <laughs> oh, you won't yeah. be able to get to the first letter. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's powerful, man. It's very, very powerful. Yeah. Say we are faced with this worldly matters which hold a fatal attraction for human beings if a person makes use of them only to the extent that they are needed for his service and no more then he has created a revelation of god's glory and a sanctification of his name he has shown that there is someone in the world who has seen the true purpose of creation the yetzer hurrah itself is nothing but a vehicle for kiddush hashem Purpose is to challenge the person to exercise his free will to defeat it. 
goodness. I've always said you can use the impulsiveness of the Yetzirah to help you make the decision to do Kiddush Hashem. To bring the revelation of the glory of Hashem into this world. That's serving Hashem with your two hearts. <laughs> yeah. It is written that the power of defilement feeds on the sparks of holiness that it contains. Tuma continues to exist only by virtue of its potential for Kiddush Hashem. This is its raison, the etre, its purpose in life. Without Kedush Hashem, there is no point in anything existing, and therefore no existence. If you could imagine anything that had no longer any potential for Kedusha, it would cease to exist, and that itself would be its Kedush Hashem. It is in this Ceasing sense. Ceasing to exist would be its Kedush Hashem. Yep. Goodness. It is in this sense that Tuma feeds on the holy sparks it contains. It continues to exist only by virtue of its potential for Kedusha. You know, what does that say about the darkness that's in the world right now? The chaos, the craziness, the madness, tragedies. By us not giving in to this narrative that is separate and distinct from Hashem, we bring Kedusha. Amen. That holds true for a lot of the traditions that we hold to. Because one of the thing, criteria I use is what is greater is will do. When it comes to tradition, assessing whether a tradition should be adhered to or not. Because ultimately, we come to this, you know, Kedusha Hashem. Right. All about the sanctification of his name in this world. You know, and what people are seeing in, in us. You know, the life that we're leading, because we, we don't need really to speak to people at all. Because Hashem puts people in our path. You know, you with the maintenance guy, me with the guy, you know, me giving Zadaka to this guy in the parking lot after paying my bill. That's Kedusha Hashem. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> it may seem insignificant to others, but like I quoted from Perky Avot earlier, you don't know the reward of a mitzvah. That's right. You really don't. You think it's something so simple. But it affects your alum habai in such a major way. The idea that an individual has holy sparks, which are his particular duty to redeem, means that each person has 
his own allotted portion in Kedush Hashem. All this ability, all his abilities, his midot character traits, mm -hmm. and the test he has to undergo are suited to this basic task. This task is assigned to him from above. It constitutes his full spiritual potential, which in some contexts is referred to as his neshama. In this sense, a person's neshama is not his ego, but the particular ideal to which he should devote his life and the totality of spiritual powers granted him to complete his task. Get your head around that one. He becomes aware of his potential through the circumstances in which he is placed and the test he is given. Each test challenges him to realize part of his spiritual potential or, in other words, releases one of the holy sparks contained in his neshama. The spiritual task of Marseille, by the way, the, the journeys, because we read about the setbacks and things that we've been through. Mm -hmm. So all of these are challenges and obstacles for us to overcome. And we're literally releasing sparks. What's interesting in the journeys is that we're brought to the place of the testing. Yeah. Man, I got to get this book. <laughs> I hope I got enough money in my bank account. Hashem, give me enough money, please. So I can buy this book. I'm saying, well, get out there and work for it. <laughs> right? I keep uh, going to pay my next check. After I pay my bills, I'm going to get this book. And it's like, bam, no, you're not. <laughs> the spiritual task of God and moving. The tribes of Gad and Reuben belong to the generation of knowledge who had received the Torah at Sinai and were constantly aware of the presence of God in their midst. When they asked Moshe to be allowed to settle in Transjordan because of the vast quantity of livestock that they possessed, one may be sure that it was not merely economic considerations which moved them. Moshe objected very strongly to their request because he understood they wanted to opt out of fighting for the land of Canaan. This, he felt, would be bad for the morale of the nation. When they assured him that they would fight alongside the other tribes in conquest of Canaan, he was prepared to grant their request. If their motives for wishing to settle in Transjordan were not merely economic, what were they? The tribes <laughs> of Reuben and Gad were certainly real, certainly realized that the great number of sheep and cattle they had been given were meant to be vehicles for Kedush Hashem. The first concern was to ensure that their property would not cause Kilu Hashem. It is not advisable to pasture sheep near arable land because of the damage they are likely to do to the crops. In fact, it later became prohibited to raise sheep in the arable parts of Eretz Israel. Transjordan, however, had large areas of pasture land and therefore was very suitable for raising sheep and cattle. There, they could cause no damage 
to their neighbors. A hasty inheritance. Nevertheless, our rabbis criticized their decision. They applied to them the verse, an inheritance which is overly hasty at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Rashi comments on this verse. An overhasty inheritance, one who rushes in confusion to be the first to take, like the tribes of Gad and Reuben who hasten to take their portion in Transjordan and spoke in confusion, putting their sheep before their children, will not be blessed in the end, as we find that they were exiled several years before the rest of Israel. They are also accused of separating themselves from their brethren because of their money. Kesef, here we go again. Getting selfish, evil eye. The physicality of this world, not focused on the spiritual. So that's the problem with this this present generation, it's so materialistic. It's devoid of any spiritual life. Everything's wrapped up in, oh, I want this, I want that. I mean, we're all guilty of it to a, a certain degree, you know? You know what I was going to mention, though? What does Zachariah say? Behold, your king comes riding on a donkey. On a donkey. More. We are creating the donkey. Well, Bezrat Hashem or Chazbe Shalom, we are creating it. But this generation and its materialism is creating the donkey for the Mashiach to come in on. <laughs> because, <laughs> because the word donkey, Chamor, is related to Chomer, which is the yeah. word for materiality. Yeah, and to take it up another notch, yeah. the donkey that Mashiach rides on is all about being poor and mitzvot. So, Bless yeah, they're poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. But also another rearrangement of those letters, Rachum, mercies, bro. Seriously. Wow. Wow. I like it when it comes in threes. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, their borders were certainly not at the highest level. And then what does Zachariah say regarding when Mashiach rides in on the Kamor? That he's in humility. Oh, yeah, because Sanhedrin brings down the reason he comes on a donkey is because we weren't worthy of the redemption. Redemption, yeah. Wow. And he was despised and rejected. He was pierced for our transgression of Torah. We always him stricken. We esteem him not. I mean, is it any wonder that Zachariah writes in that prose? 
But because of their high spiritual level, our rabbis find cause for uh, criticism. It may well have been uh, the right inheritance for them, but why did they have to rush to take it so soon? Why not wait until the division of the land was on the agenda? To the keen eyes of Kazal, this shows that subconsciously there were other motives in operation. In however subtle, uh, subtle a form, economic considerations also played a part. To confirm this, our rabbis note that the tribes of Gad and Reuben said to Moshe, we shall build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our children. Putting their livestock before their children? Of course, this may well have been just a slip of the tongue, but our rabbis are well aware that slips of the tongue are significant and betray the speaker's subconscious thoughts. It shows that they had their priorities confused. Anyway, what? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it proceed the issues of life. Initially. Anyone who has to busy himself with the affairs of this world, because this is where his portion lies, even if his motives are basically for the sake of heaven, has to be very much on guard that this, that his business does not develop into love of this world for its own sake, at the cost of his, at the cost of his serving the ship. We see that even the children of Reuben and Gad, in spite of their very high level, were misled by their sight, slight, subconscious attachment to their property into making hasty decisions and getting their priorities wrong. As a result, they lost their blessing. Blessing means the expansion of Kelim, used for spiritual purposes. It is heavenly aid, which the Mishnah calls the fruits of a mitzvah in this world. If a person becomes attached to material things for their own sake, then the blessing is withdrawn, for it no longer is good for that person. That's like Moshe smashing the Lukot. His anger mm -hmm. was completely out of necessity because Hashem was about to destroy them. And, and Moshe says, don't become angry. But what we think is an irony, I now realize is a necessity because Moshe showed divine anger and thus Israel was spared absolute destruction at the hands of Hashem. So this really does speak to that. You know, we could render our vessel unworth, uh, incapable of receiving blessing if we're not careful, if we're so materialistic, so focused on, um, you know, I want this, I want that, you know, my economic status, you know. You know, it, it, that kind of thing can really uh, shipwreck your emunah. 
So the right priorities. Rabbi Yitzhak okay. Arama, you about to say something? This, yeah, this is the uh, the exhortation that Shaul gave to Timothy about those who have shipwrecked their faith. Alexander and Hymenaeus. Mm -hmm. Real quick, if I could go there for a second. Um, as a quick note on the livestock that you've been talking about, um, just wanting everything and personal uh, possessions and all that kind of stuff, it uses the word kana for the word for livestock. So, like, it, it literally is all about, you know, what's mine and um, is that really Kuf, Is that Kuf Noon Aleph A? Yeah. The word for intent? Mm-hmm. Or jealousy? Yes. Zeal? Yeah, so it the three-letter root is uh, Kuf Noon Hey. Yeah. And it has to do with the uh, the acquiring of things. So thinking about your personal possessions before your family kind of thing, as you were just talking about, which is interesting that you correlated it to the breaking of the tablets because Moshe had to think of Yisrael before the Torah. And Hashem said, Yashakoah. <laughs> yeah. But the uh, shipwrecking of the faith, 1 Timothy 1.19, it says some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the imuna. And it was talking about hold on to your imuna and hold on to your good conscience. And when you reject those two things, that's when you get yourself into a predicament of the shipwreck. Mm. The, the moral and the spiritual fabric, as it were, of being created in the divine image. So that's what I was thinking about as you were reading. Mm, nice. Okay, the right priorities. Rabbi Yitzhak Arama illustrates this with a parable. When workmen build a house, they construct, construct gangways with rough timber, even hammering together broken planks for this purpose. But for their interior decorations and furniture, only the best polished wood is used. No one is particular about things which are temporary and serve a secondary purpose, but only about things which are permanent and primary. Our stay in this world is only temporary, while our spiritual life is permanent and primary. It is surprising, therefore, how many of us make our material occupations primary and our Torah, and our Torah secondary. When the tribes of Reuben and Gad entered the land of Canaan, and saw what saw the wheat fields and the orchards, they said, surely a spoonful of this land is worth more than a double handful in Transjordan. 
Mm. Then they said, but still, we chose it for ourselves. It was our decision. A person feels bound by any choice he makes, even when he begins to realize it could have been a mistake. All this was said about the people of that great generation whose very sins could be considered to be of a spiritual nature. How much greater is the danger in our times? A person should ponder well before deciding what the main thrust of his life will be material affairs, or Torah. Everyone knows in his own heart what, what for him is primary and what is secondary. One has to educate himself in such a way that he will be able to direct his life toward the primary and not, God forbid, toward the secondary. <laughs> and sources quoted, See the essays Noah and, and Abraham and the king of Sodom in Strive for Truth, Volume 5. For a previous reference to Raising the Holy Sparks, see Strive for Truth, Volume 3, page 100. And then the third one, literally the other side, the Sidra Akra, that's what that means. Bamibar 32, 1 through 5. I bid 32, 6 through 15, and 20, and 24. Baba Kama 79b, Babi Bar 32, 4, Mishle 2021, Babi Bar 32, 16, Babi Bar Rabat 22, 9, Paya 1, 1, Akidat Yitzak Parashat Matot. And by Ikarabah 3 1, our sources quoted. Love it. And there's a second part to this. <laughs> what? Like, still in the same parsha, or is it going to something else? Yeah, same one. Wow. I can read it. Uh, I think we're good right now because we got to definitely come to a stopping point as much as, as much as, uh, I mean, you know how it goes with tour study. It's kind of like I got to close the book right now. I don't want to. <laughs> one more, one more, one more insight. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Man, I will save it. I'll save it for the next episode. Okay. You want to open with that? Yeah. All right. Shem. Yeah, just uh, just remind me. <laughs> All right. Got you. Bezrat Shem, I will have that book next week. That'd be cool. Oh, yeah. There's, there's more volumes to it, which I want to get. It's what? It's a multi-volume multi set. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I won't have them. Not to discourage you. <laughs> How many volumes are we talking? Three or five? I think it's um, well. This is volume five, but oh, it's gonna be like I know Feldheim. 
Oh yeah, there's volume three. There's a third volume. So strive for truth. Yeah, strive for truth. Okay, I found a two volume set. Yeah, that's on Feldheim. I think it might be on Amazon, available on Amazon too. Oh man, that's a good price. Man, I hope I can get this. I can get, oh my goodness, I got a beautiful check in the mail today. About to get this. <laughs> okay, anyway, too much personal information. Back to the rumination, though. Um, always exciting to get books. Okay, so may Hashem give us the bracha of actualizing the Mashiach, increasing peace, changing all of our impurities around us in this present materiality in the twinkling of an eye into Kedusha, into the Geula, into the Beit HaMikdash, because, man, it's all around us. And we need eyes to see and ears to hear so that our present darkness can be transformed into the marvelous light of Hashem. We have that power. We just need to use it. Hashem, help us tap in. Uh, speaking of Kamor. Ooh. That's when we nice. were in California. We went hiking in the coastal redwoods. <laughs> and we ran into a couple with who were riding on their their donkeys nice that's my nice. wife standing next to that one that is cool <laughs> yeah Mashiach can come riding in on the donkey man but this time we will merit his return I mean and it won't be on a donkey this time <laughs> Ruka Shem. yeah so, prayer after study. Mm. <clears throat> I thank you, O Hashem, my God, that you have established my portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have now established my portion with idlers. For I rise early, and they arise early. I rise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. I toil, and they toil. I toil and receive reward. And they toil and do not receive reward. I run and they run. I run to the life of the world to come. And they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O oh God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and descent, deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Amen. Baruch Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet. Vechaye Olam Nata Betochenu. Baruch Ata Aronai Notain HaTorah.